The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year, Las Culturistas, with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with Dua Lipa. The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened... Uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that for the first time ever is being recorded on an earth that I no longer have to share with that fascist rap bastard Shinzo Abe. And with with me with me to celebrate this occasion is Garrison Davis. Oh, hi, said hello, and James. Have have we actually have we like introduced you introduced you yet? I don't think so. No, I just pop up talking about three D printed guns and uh, people who hate butterflies. Yeah, yeah. This is this is truly a dark day for democracy. I'm saddened by the horrible loss of a great leader. Um, uh, a hero to feminism and women, um, and I guess a, a hero to those who defend war crimes. So it's I guess really, uh, be- before really be- hurting, be- be- before before we fo- we get into one of the funniest things that has happened in maybe twenty years, um, James, do you, do you want to like talk about who you are because you are now one of us, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I, I'm one. Of, yeah, I'm now a podcaster. Um, so who I am? Uh, I am a I'm a journalist, I guess, uh, and a historian. Um, I wrote a book about the first week of the Spanish Civil War, 
uh, and my PhD is in the history of international anti-fascism, building international anti-fascist alliances through physical culture, um, which is very nerdy. Uh, but yeah, I love that stuff. Uh, what else? I'm British, if that had not been made abundantly clear by my accent. Um, and I live which, in Southern California. Which means this is a now, uh, this episode is is a majority Commonwealth episode. Yeah. That's oh, right. God. Really exciting. Oh, no. We made it. <laughs> yeah, we'll be doing the national anthem in a minute here and uh, we'll all just uh, stand up. Uh, so, uh, ex prime minister, kind of, uh, he's not around anymore, is he? No, he is dead as fuck. So, all right, all right, we should. I guess, I guess we should explain who Shinzo Abe is. Yeah. Um. Okay. If if you want a really really long account of what the Japanese Liberal Democratic Party is, because they are some of the worst people who've ever existed. Uh, go but listen to they're my liberal and democratic. <laughs> yeah. How, how, does, <laughs> how can this be? So the, 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 the very short version of this is that the Liberal Democratic Party is a party that was founded by Nobusuke Kishi, who is one of history's worst war criminals, uh, pers- like personally responsible for enslaving hundreds of thousands of people in China. Uh, He's the guy who basically he, he he's the guy who was in charge of the economy of the fascist war machine, uh, like like in, in Japan during World War II. He was the guy who uh, ran like the, the 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 sort of fascist puppet state called Manchukuo that was uh, run by Japan after they conquered it. Uh, real war criminal, also just like personally raped a like extremely large number of people. Uh, a thing that like was almost never discussed when people talk about him. Yeah, so, real like, piece of and shit. Almost like a, like a shockingly high like, number. Of, yeah, like of sex crimes. It's he, wild. Yeah, and he he's also I mean he's involved with uh, the Japanese military sex slave program, which you will hear referred to as comfort women. And I fuck I re- fucking refuse to call them comfort women because that is a fucking horrifying euphemism for again a, a program of military sex slavery. Uh, he also was one of the people who signed off on uh, Unit 731, which was Japan's chemical weapons testing unit, where they fucking, like, purposely infested, in, infected and tested chemical weapons on prisoners. Uh, yeah, he's one of the worst people ever, and then he got a bunch of CIA backing and some backing from the Yakuza, because the CIA is working with the Yakuza in early uh, uh, 1950s Japan, and he's able basically to force all of the other... Uh, conservative like people to join his party and the, the sort of the, mer- the merger of the of the liberal party liberal party and the democratic party is now the liberal democratic party this is kishi's party he founded it uh he drags everyone else into it he does an immense amount of corruption he tries to bring fascism back he narrowly fails uh shinzo abe is his grandson uh the ldp cool. liberal democratic party yeah, yeah has, has yeah it, it sucks it's like like Love the, it the, when their families the way that i've been thinking about like how do you explain this to people who don't who don't have like a background in like japanese like war crime stuff is like imagine if like one of hitler's generals had like survived world war ii and then the cia made him the made him the fucking prime minister of germany and then and uh, also his, he and then, got yeah. more fascist because people were saying mean things about his grandpa. He's like, oh, I don't like that they're calling him bad names. I'm yeah, going to get and, more and fascist now. So like Abe, Abe himself, he, he, he he's car- he's been carrying out a lot of the same things that, that Kishi was trying to do. Kishi was trying to sort of restore the, the sort of fa- full fascist power of the police. Uh, Abe has been doing a whole bunch of shift of centralizing power in the executive and expanding the police's power to just arrest whoever the fuck they want. Um, uh, so one of, one of the other things about Japan is that like legally in their constitution, they can't go to war. 
and like both Kishi and Abe, like this is like their big fucking thing is that they they want they want to fully rearm Japan. They want Japan to be able to go to war because they want to do the fucking empire again. And you know, so th- this is led. Yeah, Abe's been doing that. Um, he also the the thing he's probably most famous for in terms of like the reasons people think he's bad because he is he's like just actually a monster is he's just like a, a like unfathomable degree of war crimes denial like he he pulled so yeah. japan in in the 90s had admitted that they fucking kidnapped and enslaved like an enormous number of people from japan of people from korea people from china uh i think they also did they did in the philippines and indonesia too although there's less sort of coverage of that and like turned them into military sex slaves did things to them that are like i fucking unspeakable um and so the japanese government in the 90s had admitted that they did this and apologized for it and abe was like no fuck that uh that's that's wrong he's also a part of this group called uh nippon kagai which is like a fascist group and okay so this this is this is according to a u.s congressional report what they believe quote Japan should be applauded for liberating much of East Asia from Western colonial powers, that the 1946-1948 Tokyo war crimes tribunals were illegitimate, and that the killings by Japanese troops through the 1937 Nanjing massacre were exaggerated or fabricated. Oh, boy. Uh, They also openly... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they also... So they're Nanjing denialists. They're they're, they're sex slave denialists. Uh, They openly call for the restoration of the monarchy and the institution of Shinto as a state religion. Um... Abe ah. like Abe like has continuously said that uh, uh the the sex slaves like did it were like did were there voluntarily uh hey, he, well, there's another well, thing that but 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 Hillary Clinton just tweeted I, that Prime geez. Minister Abe was a champion of democracy and a firm believer that no economy, society, or country can achieve its full potential if you leave women behind. Uh, it, it, well, you know, <laughs> she tweeted look, look, that. To, to be fair, <laughs> to, to be fair, to be fair, uh, both Abe and uh, Nobusuke Kishi did in fact believe in using women to fuel the economy, just uh, not uh-huh. in that way. Yeah. Um, he also, th- there's there's another thing that, so one, probably these most, like, famous most controversial thing was so there's this shrine called the um yasukuni shrine which is it's the shrine that's dedicated to soldiers who like died serving the japanese emperor and in in this the, so there, there's this thing called the book of souls that has like lists of names right of just like the, of the people who died and a thousand sixty eight of the people who were con- of, of of the people in that book are people who were con- who were convicted of war crimes and there are also uh fourteen class A war criminals who either died or were executed who are considered martyrs there and uh Abe fucking like visited there and like prayed and shit and this pissed off everyone and, you know, and this is like th- there are lots of people who have gotten mad at me already for celebrating Abe's death and uh my 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 official line on this is if Abe didn't want me to celebrate his fucking death maybe he shouldn't have celebrated the lives of the people who killed my fucking family so uh fuck them yeah so uh, he's not 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 a great dude um, he's real bad yeah and problematic dude so and the the, the, yeah. the other thing we should mention too before we go into sort of like the details of the shooting is that there is an election actually but but by, by by the time this episode drops i think the election will have happened um where there is a real chance that the liberal democratic party is going to sort of like just fucking sweep it because the liberal democratic party immediately starts blaming the left for this uh there's a whole bunch yeah. of i mean just absolutely horrifying stuff where they're blaming uh korean people who live in uh if, live in japan which if you know anything about japanese history uh when that stuff starts happening like 
in 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 nineteen twenty three after the Kanto earthquake, uh, a bunch of people just started blaming Koreans for the whole thing, and they fucking literally exterminated almost the entire Korean population in several major Japanese cities. And so this stuff is very scary. Uh, it's possible that this is going to set off a, a, a like a an incredible right wing literature Japanese politics, and there's a chance that this 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 could be the actual thing that like full-on triggers japan like we are being and you know going back into sort of just being a pure fascist empire so this is not yeah that that part is really bad the Um, motivation for the assassination is still at least at time of recording still slightly unclear very Um, unclear (laughs) according according to some politicians and news media we do know the suspect is hideo kojima so that you can you can infer a little bit based on so yeah, there is there is like French politicians and a Greek news channel who are using pictures of video game developer Hideo Kojima and passing them off as the shooting suspect. Yeah, like which is no. really yeah. funny. It is really pic- funny. Pictures of Kojima like inside like a, a Russian like communist hat fucking thing. Pictures yeah. of him wearing a Joker <laughs> shirt and standing in front of a Che Guevara picture. It's very funny. And they're using this to, as proof that it's by a left wing terrorist, and it's actually video game developer Hideo Kojima. <laughs> it's yeah. So in, so, in terms of, in terms anyway, of yeah. like I guess what we know about the actual shooter, um, we don't know that much. Is a forty-two-year-old guy who was a, a a former veteran of the uh, of the the Japanese Self Defense Force. He was he was a Navy guy, which I guess partially explains why he can shoot a gun. Um, but yeah, it, the, the details are really murky. What, what, what we've got at time of recording is the Japanese police saying that it wasn't because of a political thing, and that it was because of a group that he was that. Abe was a member of who the fuck knows what that means. That can mean any number of things. I, I'm not going to speculate live on here because I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, but also it was extremely funny. And we should, (laughs) we should talk about the weapon that was. Yeah. This is why it's, this is one of the reasons why it's extremely funny. (laughs) And we, we should, I'm probably going to hand this over to James because James is a bit, a bit more of an expert in this type of, uh, <laughs> DIY weaponry. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> what? Great. What the fuck is going on with this homemade gun? <laughs> it's like a yeah, this shit. Yeah, this shit is fucking. Oh, this shit. This is crazy. Um, it's so the, funny. Yeah, it's extremely funny. It's extremely funny that all these people with fifty thousand followers on Twitter who quote unquote do OSINT like immediately. Uh, label this a three D printed gun, which it's not. Uh, it does not look three D printed. Gun, no. It, this gun is being held together with duct tape. Like that, <laughs> yeah, that is that, that is the kind of weapon that we are dealing with here. This is this is a homemade gun, like held together with fucking duct tape. It is extremely. It is like he he got blown up by an electric blunderbuss. It is yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's I mean, like there it's so there, there could very well be three D printed parts in like around yeah, it, but yeah, it but. is. But it's not. It's not looking. It's 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 not like an. It's not like an FGC nine or anything. Um, no. It's it's a weird like electronic pipe duct taped together shotgun yeah it's i think perhaps if people don't understand we should like break down how firearms work broadly and then how this one works specifically sure right so like and there's no reason why you should be familiar with this but like you need something to explode something to make it explode and something to go out the end and, and a way to make sure it only goes in one direction right uh 
so what this character has done is seemingly it's yeah it's like a blunderbuss or a musket in that it seems to be like muzzle loaded from the front uh and uh yeah it's, i'm looking at it now and it really is just covered in duct tape uh so I, I tweeted a picture of it it's a yeah this shit is uh is very old-fashioned he seems to have made his own powder too like it was very very smoky which you can do i'm not gonna tell you how to do it but uh it's a thing that that is possible and so essentially from what i'm seeing here it looks like it's like a piezoelectric ignition which then ignites this homemade powder that he had uh and then he's put something in a shotgun means it doesn't have rifling right so it doesn't impart spin on the projectile so he's basically got two pipes uh, a piezoelectric igniter some homemade powder and then uh, he could have put nails in there he could have put a cast lead ball uh, anything bolts and this wasn't the only homemade weapon he had. When police raided his house, he had a whole bunch of this stuff guy. that is that look it, it looks out of like it looks like it's out of like Fallout or something. It is like there was one like blunderbust that had nine different barrels all duct taped yeah. together. That it's just with, like it ex- exposed wiring, exposed circuit boards. Like it's it's like it's extremely janky. Yeah, it's like I'm not entirely sure that the uh, the nine barrel one, the central barrel, isn't touched by the by the structural duct tape, and I'm not sure that it wouldn't have moved in one direction or the other when he fired it. It's really incredible. Uh, yeah, I think there's a there's like a yoga. I can't see what but he's put something on the. He's made a buttstock with that one, so like he can yep. shoulder it, I guess. And I I don't know if that's like a piece of tire or what, but yeah, yeah. The, this like, is not a precision like, weapon wooden boards there's like some type of like reflect I, I, it looks almost like a smartphone's attached to some of the wiring or yeah. like there's, 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 some like reflective scre- there's some like reflective screen that looks like it's like an like an electronic control box which could could just be like an old smartphone or something yeah i wondered if he could because that's what you use for for an improvised explosive device right it's a uh it's a cell phone to actuate it so it could be yeah. that maybe he had a plan to just put it near where are was going to be and then call it and then have it go off. God, that would be so, well. I mean, no. This it, this is a much better. This is a much better assassination. It, it, it has the though. stock, so I'm guessing. I'm guessing he would he would be yeah. planning to hold it because otherwise, there's no reason to put the butt stock there. Um, True. But who yeah. Know, but who knows? Who knows? Like this who, guy's like, operating on a different level. We, uh, we, we have no way to know what he was thinking. At least, yeah. at least, at least not at the moment. I, what he was thinking was, I want to kill Shinzo Abe with my pipes and planks. Uh, yeah, and he did it. He successfully. Yep. Wh- whatever you think of him, this man did successfully kill Shinzo Abe with a gun held together by duct tape. It's yeah. it was pretty impressive. Like I, I think the other thing about this is kind of impressive is a he so he, it, it, so he there were there were two barrels on it that each fired, and he he managed to hit him from like a pretty good distance away. Like we we don't have there's there's no video that directly well at least not that's out yet that like directly shows the shooter. But we have a lot of video because Abe is giving a speech right. And so we have a bunch of video of like filming Abe and it's and because of where it is coming from off screen, like that was a pretty good distance. And as best I can tell, he only hit Abe. I don't I don't think I haven't seen any reports of anyone else getting hit. So I yeah, remarkably that, impressive. That is actually that is actually kind of slightly surprising. Yeah, that there was there was no one else hit. It's like he just got the guy he was. <laughs> yeah, it's like to. that. That yeah. is that is genuinely pretty rare in assassination. Like, like basically like yeah. a homemade blunderbust cannon yeah. is like surprisingly. <laughs> surprisingly controlled and accurate yeah it's, it's i've just found a picture stuff. of it 
with the uh, Cyberpunk 2077 <laughs> logo underneath it, which is pretty great. Oh, Very that's, that rules. Yeah, this does rule. Uh, yeah, he, he did manage to cause... He could have just put like a large, massive lead ball in it, I guess. Um, yeah, whatever, because he well, didn't I, I even don't, I don't think him. it... I, I don't think it was one thing. So the one the 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 one thing I could say about the the that we guess we know about the ammo is that like there there were like a bunch of like there there one of the a bunch of the reports about the injuries that he suffered were talking about like he got hit in the back, but there were also holes in his neck. So okay. I my my guess yeah, is that there was, from there that was a lot was of there was a lot of blood from a lot of different places. Yeah, my guess yeah. is it wasn't one thing then, but I don't mm-hmm. know it. The, the the other thing that's kind of interesting about this is like the extent to which well okay so like he was like Abe was like very clearly dead like people people had like reported him at the scene as having no vitals and they were like yeah his heart stopped and it, and they they helicoptered him to like what Tokyo yeah they helicoptered him to Tokyo but the the, the 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 Japanese government did a very good job of making sure the press had like no information and so there was just like it was like many 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 hours where they were like pretending that he wasn't dead and like wouldn't confirm that he was dead and he's like this this man is clearly dead as shit like he he yeah. has gotten blown up by a blunderbuss like in the back his neck's gone his like I mean his neck's not gone but like his his neck his neck's been shot his heart has stopped and they just sort of like keep it there for for a a pretty impressively long amount of time and that, that's the other thing yeah we 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 know very little about what happened and why um the the press has been keeping the, the government's been keeping a very tight lid on information about the shooting so far yeah i guess we want to pivot into the gun control side of this sure um i guess sure, yeah, okay so yeah. the, the the i mean like the, the, there was a mayor shot a few years ago yeah just right? uh yeah. a yakuza guy shot the mayor of nagasaki so like it, and like I, there's a there's been a lot of people like journalists people who are like supposedly japan experts who are like oh this is really rare in japanese culture it's like no it's not people get assassinated like like the, the <laughs> japan has a very low rate of gun violence but of that gun violence the num- the, the the number of politicians that get assassinated is like unbelievably high and you know i mean like there have been there there have been a lot of i mean like abe's like grandfather nozuki kishi like got stabbed right after he left office like and he only didn't die because the 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 guy who stabbed him claimed that he wasn't trying to kill him he was just stabbing him which is one of the weirdest <laughs> things i've ever heard which i don't know i i i suspect some yakuza bullshit was going on there but yeah like i japan has assassinations um it there's there's this weird thing where people think Japan is this place that's like like no violence happens like it's a completely orderly society it's like all this all this like weird stuff Fam- made up about Asians famously in the 80s. pacifist like, in Japan yeah it's like like, yeah. like this 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 is a country like this this is a country where people like like even in like the seventies like even through the eighties people would charge like army convoys with sticks and like fight them like this is a country that like like people. Uh, they they, they 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 have a sort of ape shit switch that just like yeah they have their fair share of like cults that do acts of violence yeah, like this they have their right. fair share of political extremists like, that do yeah. acts of violence like this and yeah like everywhere else in like like everywhere else in the world stuff just happens sometimes yeah yeah i think it is interesting that like um japan has extremely strict gun control right like uh licenses tests background checks uh prohibitions on most people owning and carrying but like it's kind of interesting that this is more of a uh like a like a first amendment question i guess in american terms right like if if you're 
on the internet enough. I'm sure it looks like this person has just Googled how to make gun. And uh, like, this is what came up. And so I think it's kind of fascinating that that, uh, that this person has been like, it, aside from their possible connections to any criminal networks, but like, I know the Yakuza were selling guns to people in Myanmar pretty recently, so they have access to this. Person yeah, yeah, and, and like, and the the the, the mayor who got whacked by Yakuza guy, like, if the Yakuza is gonna do, like, I don't know, if the Yakuza is gonna do a killing, like, they they like they they have access to weapons. They would they use a real a gun. They would yeah, well, use a I mean, duct taped together. You no, know, okay, so like, <laughs> probably, but also like. I wouldn't completely rule it out because I wouldn't rule out them just finding some guy and doing this thing the FBI does and it's like, hey, you're gonna go do an attack now. Like it, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't surprise me if that if, if they did that as like a plausible deniability thing, but like we don't know. Um I still don't think we can rule out that Hideo Kojima is the mastermind <laughs> behind this. Um and it's all I mean it's convoluted to, enough to be a Kojima plot. I know, right? It is it's it's just a ploy to plug his next game. Um just have to add a few like nonsense names to the, all all the people involved, like Blunderbustman, and then it, it's just it's it's easy, easy. But yeah, it's fascinating that this person was seemingly like maybe had other plans or had tried several other like craft firearms and settled on this one. But yeah, they had access to a lot of pipes. That's for sure. Did you guys see the Yakuza guy who was uh, arms dealing to Myanmar? No. No. Oh, for f- fucking wild. Uh, <laughs> so he, he was like extensively stung by the feds. So this guy, uh, he was Yakuza. He was part of a, like an ongoing sting operation for like several years where he was selling, like basically um, like trading guns for drugs trading guns to buy drugs so he was selling to a couple of groups in Myanmar he was uh to groups in like the Tamil region uh and a couple of other people and he uh <laughs> he was at least one of the people he thought was uh, a buyer was actually a fed and they've captured all of these amazing conversations where they call the guns like cake and ice cream <laughs> and like one of the uh, one of the things in the uh, in the criminal complaint is a picture of him just with like a um, a law like an anti tank weapon and he's just like giving it like the V sign and he's wearing these like yellow aviators and a leather jacket <laughs> and like the way they arrested him was at a steakhouse I think either in New York or New Jersey but like they uh, they lured him into a steakhouse meeting and then he got busted by the feds but. Yeah, these guys were trafficking like serious stuff, like surface-to-air missiles and things. So they have access to some pretty heavy equipment. Yeah, that, that's a that's a pretty old, like the the Yakuza has been sort of like, I don't know how you'd describe it, uh, like a kind of like para arm of the Japanese state in a lot of ways for a very very long time. Like there are. There have been like Yakuza people with basically special forces training. Um, they they at one point like kidnapped and killed the Empress of Korea as part of like a thing to like justify starting a war. So they are they are very well hooked up. I I I, I don't know. It's still unclear to me because I mean, like that's the obviously everything again. Like there the the LDP has a lot of Yakuza connections because kind of well, okay partially kind of everything is Yakuza connections but par- partially also because the, the Yakuza were like a sort of founding like political block of the LDP in the first place so who knows like p- 
LDP people have gotten like attacked by Yakuza people before. It could be that. It could be something else. We sort of just don't know yet. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's nothing identifying this guy. Like I'm just looking at a picture of him, and there's nothing particularly sort of identifying yeah. his clothing or anything like that. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the death of Shinzo Abe. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> extremely oh, funny. Rest in piss. Cr- critical uh, support to H- Hideo Kojima and all of the other uh, freedom fighters. Oh, uh, I, I guess I guess we could talk a little bit about the international response to this. Yeah, because people have no idea what's happening. Yeah, I mean, like, I, so like all the Americans are sort of like are doing the, all American liberals are sort of doing the like, oh my god, he was a good guy. And it's like, no, he wasn't. This guy was a monster. Um, okay, I I, I will say this. Both the Chinese and the Korean embassies are being surprisingly diplomatic about it. I saw As that, in, yeah. no one they haven't. No one has actively insulted him yet. Uh, social media wise, I mean, politically, like, that's a good move for co- like intercountry relations. Yeah, but like so. I okay, like I, try, J- Japanese relationships with Korea, with South Korea, are well, no, and North Korea are really bad. And a lot of the reason why they're really bad is specifically because of Shinzo Abe and because of all of his bullshit. Yeah, so the they're obviously happy, but they're not going to, like, rub it well, in. Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's not clear to me that they wouldn't have done this if this had happened in, like, the 2010s. Like, it's... Interesting. <laughs> these guys really hate each other. Um, yeah, I, th- there's been some sort of, like, people... I don't know. People are trying to do a Taiwan angle on this because Abe's, like, a Taiwan supporter, but I, I, I don't... Eh, eh. I don't think there's actually that much. People want this to have much more geopolitical like significance that it probably actually will um yeah yeah well but it's in the meantime yeah fascist is dead uh that's always funny it and happened uh yeah it did it, it, it did in fact happen here well it happened over there but you know what i mean um yeah. it could happen here certain <laughs> statistically we are we are about yeah. to do based yeah, on to the, be the, fair yeah yeah, you wouldn't need to Honestly, uh, resort with, to the duct tape model in America. No, with the amount of firearms here, it is kind of a little. It is sometimes a little surprising how little stuff like this actually happens. There's obviously a lot of work that goes into like preventing it, but but still, sometimes it's it's kind of it's kind of shocking. Um, yeah, like I, I think I think I think if you look at the last twenty years, I think more Japanese politicians have been assassinated than American politicians. Like oh, I'm trying, right. I'm trying to think of an American politician because we are because they, they, there's they a lot even, more American politicians and a lot yeah, more guns. They 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 <laughs> killed they killed uh, when, when they went after Gabby Giffords. They killed someone, I think, but yeah, I don't. I'm trying to think of anyone else other than that. Um, not in recent memory. The guy who shot Reagan is now touring. Uh, yeah, but, he, but he, 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 didn't even, he didn't even kill him. That's not even an assassination. Yes. That's just an assassination yeah, yeah. attempt. Like, <laughs> yes, a very botched one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cross, um, crossover between John Hinckley and Hideo Kojima. It's possible. <laughs> that will be the game. Yeah. I'm just gonna keep referring to the suspect as Hideo Kojima. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth noting that, uh, like, he did have armed guards. There were uh, armed guards present. Like, you can see their guns in their holsters as they take down the the person who shot him. Uh, but they are uh, they were not on their A game that day. Yeah, that you you can see in the video. There's like one of the guys is I think trying to like get a, a bulletproof briefcase in between Abe and the guy, and it just doesn't work. He just it just it oh, doesn't. Yeah. It just fails completely. They Abe had just gets one owned. job. <laughs> they they didn't. Yeah, yeah, like they, Operation Meat Shield. They weren't just on. 
they weren't just not on their A game. They completely failed at their opening oh, shot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, like, they, so it, it's, it's not like the guy even tried to run away. He just like stood there and got arrested. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he did not really put much of a did not put up much of a fight. Yeah. Yeah, he no, he didn't. I think. Yeah, he uh, he went down pretty fast. I guess he went with like this smaller gun maybe to conceal it because it looks like he was pretty close. Yeah, I, that is that is very likely. Well, mm. a very dark day for democracy. Um, <laughs> dark day for feminism, um, as Hillary Clinton said. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, luckily they have Rahm Emanuel as a bastard to Japan to comfort them in this difficult Look, time. Look, the, the, the LDP are the only people on Earth who des- who actually deserve Rahm Emanuel. So, <laughs> look, if, if, you, if, if you didn't want to have to deal with Rahm Emanuel, you shouldn't have taken all that CIA money. This is, this is, this is now their curse. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about these types of homemade weapons and all that kind of stuff in the future because it is it, it is interesting and you know places where places where like actual firearms are hard are harder to get. We're seeing more and more shit like this popping up. Yeah, um, yeah, and that that will definitely be worth be worth getting into along with 3D printed weapons. All right. Um, yeah. Any anything else to add? I th- or I'll, does I'm, that does does that do it? Yeah, I think that's a wrap. All right. Well. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod and Cool Zone Media. Uh, see you next time and critical support to Hideo Kojima. <laughs>
Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that just happened here. All right, that's my my part done. Chris, what are we what are we talking about today? I, I I have brought you all here today to discuss one of the most sacred and venerable of our political institutions, an institution whose words echo through history and carve the political, legal, and economic framework of our world. I am referring, of course, to the bread riot. Hey, there we go. I love a good bread riot. I yeah. I do too. This is this is a good a, a non-zero part of why I wrote this episode. How how Two is episodes. this re- how is this relatable? The grain supply seems really stable right now. I, it's all what everyone says stable. about the grain supply. No one no no one has thrown a Molotov through a bank window in two hundred years. I, look, go- I I was I was reliably informed by several Marxist historians that that bread riots were over. I'm gonna I'm gonna Google Ukrainian wheat harvest. As I do every exactly five years, the the moment just now came up where where I check it every five years. So let me just oh 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 uh is that a oh good dear idea? oh dear oh. is there a problem? <laughs> well, let me go eat my fifth Wonder Bread slice of the day and not think about it. Uh, good stuff. All right, so yeah, let's talk bread riots. Yeah, we're talking bread riots. So. Bread riots are an ancient institution. Um, you can, I mean, you can find them like very easily as far back as the Roman Republic. Yeah, it is eighty percent of Roman Republican politics. Yeah, is people and, and rioting like, over like, bread. Like, okay, if, if you wanted to like go further back than that, I have no doubt you could like spend probably ten minutes and find bread rioting in like Sumeria or something. Uh, I didn't do this, and the reason I didn't do this, even though I'm talking about the history of the bread riot, is that the, the sort of the, the structure of the bread riot is shaped inexorably by the sort of political and economic conditions around it. And the political and economic conditions of ancient Rome are somewhat similar to us, but not really. So instead of doing that, we're starting in the late 1700s, where there are a lot of bread riots. But particularly, there's a lot of very well-documented bread riots in the UK and France. And I, I guess b- b- before we actually like talk about the specific riots, we should, we should talk about what a bread riot actually is. Because, okay, so I mean, on on a very superficial level, a bread riot is when people don't have bread and they riot. But the actual response to that and what the riots look like are interesting and sort of complicated. Um, I'm going to quote now from the book Free Markets and Food Riots. And uh, this is is talking about specifically the 1700s riots, but yeah, uh, food riots took several forms. A, the blockade or entrave that prevented the export of grain from an area in which shortages existed. B, the price riot, or taxation populare, in which food was seized by protesters, a just price set, and the lot sold. C. Agrarian demonstrations in which farmers destroyed their own produce as a dramatic protest. And D. The market riot, in which the crowd took retributive action against commercial agents, uh, bakers, millers, or local magistrates in the form of looting or tumultuous assembly to force dealers or local authorities to reduce prices. So, okay, th- there's a lot of different things going on here. Uh, we're going to get back to the farmers' protest stuff, like, a lot later, because the, the specific kind of, like, rural, like, versions of this kind of fade into the background for a couple of centuries. Um, 
what's happening in the urban centers, though, is really interesting in a lot of ways. And, and it gets at the core of, of what's going on in these sort of like late 1700s riots. Um, notably, the crowds who are doing the rioting aren't just like they're not just like seizing the bread and eating it, which is a thing that like you would assume they would be doing if they were, you know, it's a bunch of people who are starving and there's bread and they take it. Right. But that's that's actually not what they're doing. What they're doing is essentially negotiating over price. You, you see this in the sort of price riot thing, right? Uh, you know, the, the thing that they actually do is they seize a bunch of grain and then they sell it off at what, at what they sort of like at what they deem a fair price is. And you know what, what? What this is attempting to do basically is it's it's a it's a very very direct way of trying to get bakers to lower their prices. And the the other thing that's about these riots is that they are. They're they're very politically sophisticated and they're they're very targeted. Um, th- there's a thing you hear a lot, and, and if you've ever read anything about any modern riot, uh, you will hear just people ranting about how people are destroying blindly destroying their own neighborhoods, and it's it's just like not true. Riots tend to have sort of a just, riots tend to have a sort of political specific political focus and attacking specific targets, which is why like. You know, the first things that go up in a riot are pawn shops, liquor stores, police stations, and uh, now stores that treat their employees badly. They literally have specific targets. Yeah, yeah. Like it. It's you know it's 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 very like all all of all of the stuff that's happening is stuff that has like it's the result of of political grievances that people have sort of been accumulating for a long time, and. This is also true of these sort of of these early bread riots too. Um, going back to the book Free Markets and Food Riots. Protesters did not rampage indiscriminately, but focused their wrath on particular individuals and institutions whom the crowd held responsible for unjust practices. Typically, it was not the producers or retailers of food, but the middlemen who were seen as responsible for shortages and price raises, the grain dealers, wholesalers, speculators, and mills. Grain shipments by wagon, ship, and canal barge were seized and distributed among participants or sold at a just price. Warehouses were raided with similar results. Textile workers in 1770 reams, quote, seized the town's markets, proceeded to sell all the grain in the market at three quarters of the current price. They then turned their attention to the warehouse and to the granaries of numerous religious houses, which they treated in a similar fashion. Yeah, and so, you know, this, 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 is a, this is a pretty remarkable degree of political sophistication, right? They're, they're not targeting sort of farmers or bakers, and especially not targeting people who are like well-known and liked in the community. They're targeting people who they can directly tie to, to grain price speculation. And th- this is a, you know, in some sense, like this, this is a demonstration of the kind of like basic contradiction of the market, right? On the one hand, you have bread as this like physical thing that you need to survive. On the other hand, you have bread as this market commodity. And the mark, you know, as a market commodity, it's a sort of speculative asset, which people are like buying and selling and hoarding like stocks because not because they actually need to eat it, but because they're interested in its sort of market value. And you know, the Marxists will call this uh, the difference between use value or like the value you get from eating a piece of bread and the exchange value, which is like the, the, the bread as a commodity that can be traded for other commodities. And, you know, and, like this is this is in some sense like this is behind a lot of like the housing crisis right now. You have a bunch of people who buy houses and apartment buildings that, you know, not because they need to live in them, but as an asset that will appreciate over time, you know, like appreciate in value over time like stocks do. But this means that people who like need houses to like live in them like don't get a house because they're being held by people who are trying to get their value to appreciate. And the goal of these riots is basically to prevent bread from becoming an exchange value. That is to sort of like market commodity use for speculation and turn them back into use values. But even again here, this is interesting, right? Because it's not like these people are like, like, like anti-market, anti-capitalist, right? They, they, they tend not to sort of just seize the bread outright. 
what they're doing is they, they're insisting on buying it at a specific quote unquote just price. And this this sort of gets into the question of like why are these riots happening in the first place? Um, the, the obvious explanation, like okay, the people are rioting because the price of bread is increasing, but that's that's not actually like an explanation, right? It's just it's a precondition. But like, there's a lot of places where bread prices rise, and you never get a riot. So, a lot of of people have studied this and tried to figure out what is happening. Uh, the, the 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 second explanation that historians came up with is something called the moral economy. Um, and 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 in this model. People aren't just reacting to like a price increase. Well, what they're actually reacting to is what becomes known as the entitlement gap, which is this gap between people what people think they're entitled to based on like the morality and how hard they work, et cetera, et cetera, and like what they actually get. And so, you know, in, in less academic language, it, it's people going like, I'm getting price gouged. This is bullshit. Bring the prices down to what they're supposed to be. And, you know, that's part of it. There, there's, there's another theory that argues that uh, food riots are driven by these, like, really complicated sort of, like, webs of horizontal social relations and, like, things like uh, networks of wives and, like, political organizations and sort of, like, alliances that happen inside of villages, stuff like that, and that, uh, you know, pr- and, and the, the, these groups sort of, like, react to price increases by banding together and forcing people to lower prices. Um, now, notably... I one one of the like the things I listed in those that like web of things right is wives networks as the sort of like first community web that leads to food riots um and this is this is turns out to be important women are often like the leaders and initiator of bread riots and the the sort of theory behind it is that they're actually the ones like buying the bread and so they're sort of they're more in tune with disturbances of food prices et cetera et cetera and you know the food price increases are a threat to what academics call social reproduction. Or in essence, like taking care of yourself, your family, and your household, and like making sure you can sort of support and raise your children. So there's, well, so the the the, the good version of it is it's you're taking care of the people around you. The cynical version of it is it's social it's re, it's social reproduction because you're creating another generation of workers for capital. Uh, but because women end up doing like an enormously disproportionate amount of that work, uh, they you know they they wind up in the streets first because they're the people who are most acutely sort of like sensitive to this stuff happening. Um. Yeah. What's what's you know the and and the the other thing that's sort of worth noting here is that riots are these these kind of bread riots are usually urban affairs and they're sort of they're the product of people who live in cities right it's you're sort of artisans your industrial workers there's this like fighting core of teenagers who seem to show up in all of these bread riots and uh, thankfully that that it, that never yeah. happens today we do not have a bunch of teenagers who show up every time to fight the cops when something bad happens no experience with this yeah I've certainly <laughs> never seen anything like that happen uh, do these with- other countries have the feds put piles of bricks out on the street <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is well, we, we we haven't they, they haven't gotten to that level of entrapment yet. They're right, they're, they're right, not powerful right. enough. They, this this is before the development of the police state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't have an FBI to burn down the third precinct. Yeah, <laughs> they, they 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 haven't invented the agent provocateur yet. Yeah, a cunning false flag. <laughs> so what the, what's interesting about the 18th century riots, though, is I've been talking a lot about how these are led by women, and that's true. But specifically, the 18th the 1700s ones tend to be more gender balanced than later riots. And I'm, I'm going to read this from the historian Lynn Taylor because it's, it's one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life, and I love it. Cynthia Bolton's study of the French Flower War of, seven, of 1775 makes clear the mixed nature of traditional food riots. Indeed, the number of men involved had increased significantly in the Flower Wars due to the changing male economic, 
social, including familial, and political status during the Ancien Regime. Theirs was a life of precarious and declining social economic position, disequilibrium in the family structure, political alienation, one that left them in positions similar to those of mothers, wives, sisters, and daughters. The men who rioted had, in crucial ways, been feminized. Oh boy. <laughs> They forced. They are rioting because they've been. Yeah, forced I mean, this uh, this is a thing that literally happened in uh, in Myanmar during the uprising. They, there are kind of local local cultural sort of attitudes there that make it that have made it for a long time like uh, essentially considered like shameful to touch women's clothing um, or particular like there's certain things that like you don't wear and that you're not supposed to look at if you see someone dressed that way um, that are like traditional women's clothing and so a bunch of male protesters would dress that way and form up in like ranks at the protests because it made the police like <laughs> uncomfortable and sometimes like back off that's um, extremely cool yeah there's like some literal examples of that in very recent riots yeah and, and i think that gets at one of the things that's sort of happening is happening in this period too which is that like one of the kinds of things that generates these bread riots is this kind of is is this instability in gender roles and is this sort of instability in in what the role of a person in society is going to be and that i don't know it has a lot of interesting effects and when those effects are riots the stuff the stuff that happens is really cool because you get a lot of sort of like gender roles getting messed up you get a lot of like social ties being broken I guess so. The, the other thing that's going on in this period um, that is is important because I because it, it sort of like foreshadows a lot of what the sort of later bread riots are going to be about is that and th this is this is like the fourth theory of bread riots if you sort of like go through your economic historians of, of this stuff. Um, they're talking about basically the the, the late seventeen hundreds are are one of the sort of key moments in like the formation of of the modern state and. What what this means in terms of food is that control of the food supply is moved from these this sort of like parentalistic like feudal state thing where on a local level you have guaranteed prices and access to food, and this is shifted to laissez-faire capitalism in which there is there there are, there are no price controls there's there's no guarantee you can get food, and subsequent to this also at the same time is the centralization of the military bureaucracy and the centralization of the military bureaucracy means that they're taking more control of the food supply. Um, here, here's some free markets and food riots again. Older parentalistic models operating at the local level and assuring a plentiful supply of necessaries at a low price were undermined by new national policies aimed at greater efficiency and market regulation. Spanning a century and more, the policies included such varied activities as enclosure, land concentration, capital intensification of farming, proletarianization, grain exports, taxes, tariffs, and other government efforts to regulate the food supply. Price riots were simply one expression of popular grievances stemming from this broader change. And this is, this is something that's, that's very common. Uh, bread riots are, are like deeply and intimately linked in the, with the ways that food, food product, the food production process is changing. And specifically, linked, they're, they're linked to the ways the food production process is changing because of the state and markets. But we're sort of leading into the late 1700s. And at this point, something happened that no one expected. A bread riot went completely the other direction and, ir and irrevocably changed the state and the market itself. Um, and I, I, I am talking about history's maybe most famous bread riot. That's right. It's the French Revolution, baby. Liberty, egalité, fraternity, hon hon. And this is this, now, this is like – you mean to tell me that the French had a revolution? 
I mean, it's kind of it's kind of marginal, admittedly. The it, fame it, that doesn't sound like the French that I know. That's true. The 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 the, the, the modern French have replaced revolution with racism, unfortunately. Yeah. But you know, look, look, we're 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 in the 1700s. Things are different. Um, yeah, and so we're we're, we're in, in in a second. We're going to talk about the bread riot that changed the history of bread riots and the course of world history forever. But first, do you know who doesn't love bread riots? Marie um, Antoinette. Yeah. Yep. Uh, who is the primary sponsor of this show? She realized the whole cake thing didn't work out great, so now she's saying. Let them have podcasts. Let them cast pods. We're back, and our primary sponsor has been executed by a mob. So if you are a member of European nobility, maybe you're a Habsburg, you know, um, hit us up and uh, offer us a sponsorship. Yeah. Uh, well, I, okay, we, we, we're going to rewind a little bit before they kill Marie Antoinette to get to uh, how that happened. So what, one of the things, if, if, if you read the sort of literature on bread riots, one of the things bread riot people will talk about over and over again is bread riots being apolitical. And they kind of like stretch this to a point. Well, because I mean, okay, so like, like there, there's a couple levels which doesn't make any sense, right? Like, okay, if, if, if you think that bread is being sold at too high a price because people are, are gouging you, that is political, right? And then you go out and make them not do that. Yeah, that's politics. I, I people I, love to say things aren't political when they don't align with like a simple political party. Like if it if it doesn't line up directly with the kind of approved debate topics between the political parties that dominate things, they like to say shit is apolitical. But, you know, starving because of tax decisions or whatnot is is an inherently political thing. Yeah, and, and, and deciding that you're not going to starve and taking bread from people is an incredibly political thing. Yeah, that's a politics. But, you, yeah, you've and, do, you have done a politics. Yeah, you've done, you've, you've done a lot of politics. And, you know, but, but one, one of the things that, that – and the, the other thing this leads to is if, if, a, if a thing that involves bread suddenly, like, turns into capital P politics and suddenly you have people doing things that are, like, well understood as, like, conventional political gestures, immediately everyone stops calling it a bread riot. And if, but like, if you look at what's actually happening, it's here's a bunch of people who are mad about the price of bread. Uh, they went to change the price of bread. It kind of didn't work. And so instead they overthrew the government. And th this is, this is, this is, this is, uh, this is the bread riot that, that we're getting to now uh, up until, you know, up until, uh, 1789, like you can argue that like historians will argue that, oh, these bread riots are apolitical. Uh, that just ends in in a, on a, I think it's October fifth, uh, seventeen eighty nine. Uh, but by by this point, the French Revolution is like well underway. Um, they've stormed the Bastille. There's a bunch of people in a parliament writing a constitution. But like in, in October of of seventeen eighty nine, it's still unclear like how radical any of this is going to be. Right. Um, it, at this point, it still seems likely that there's going to be a king. And not only is there going to be a king, the king is still going to be pretty strong. And then, yeah, on October 5th, 1789, uh, maybe history's most famous bread riot breaks out. So 7,000 women who are, like, incredibly pissed off at the high price of bread in Paris march on Versailles, which is where the royal family of France had been, like, governing France from for, like, 100 years. And these women are really, really angry, and they, 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 they basically force the royal family to come back with them to Paris. 
And I guess it's, it's important to note here that Paris and Versailles are like 12 miles apart. So this isn't like a multi-day journey. They just like get mad one day and they wake up and they walk to the next city over. And this radically changes the entire direction of, of the French Revolution because once well, – if the royal family is in Versailles, right, like the, the, the Parisian mob doesn't have direct access to them. But once they're, once they're in Paris and once, once, once this bread riot like brings the king to Paris, suddenly – the entire like the entire concentrated political power of the French system is now centered in Paris and is now in a place where subsequent bread riots can actually do stuff. And this directly leads to the kings being executed. This leads to our sponsors uh, getting guillotined. And it it basically it, it's it's it completely cements uh bread as sort of like the central part of of like one of the central aspects of what the french revolution is about like by by, by the end of the revolution that the 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 slogan of the sort of revolutionary french working class is bread in the constitution of 1793 so you know you could you you could you can look at the priorities there and look at like all of this is sort of in a sort of extended rolling bread riot um unfortunately for us uh, uh and spoilers to everyone who has not caught up on the end of the french revolution uh, the revolution loses and Napoleon takes power, and this is where uh, we we enter the era of what's known as the bourgeois revolution. This is this is the modern era, and if you've, if you've read your like your like Arab cop swamp, you're like you're you're sort of very conventional like Marxist historians or your conventional sort of liberal historians. Uh, they will all tell you that the bread riot sort of dies in the early 1800s, and that's replaced by like strikes and political protests organized by unions and parties because like the the rural class has been like displaced at the center of history by the industrial working class, and that's just like not true. Um, and it's not true in in two senses. One, it's in the sense that like we have bread riots now, but it's also not true because there's another wave of bread riots. That are that are very very conventional and very much sort of in in, in the classic 1700s mode. Uh, here is uh, here's Lynn Taylor again. It is true that the proactive form of protest became common, even predominant, by the early 20th century. However, scattered through the periodical literature are accounts of 20th century food riots, which look surprisingly like those of the 18th and early 19th century. Something not expected in modern industrialized nation states. Food riots occurred in northern France in 1911, in Britain during the winter of 1916-1917, in New York in 1917, in Toronto in both 1924-1923, in Barcelona in 1918, in Vichy, France in 1942, and in northern France throughout the German occupation. The form of protest was remarkably consistent in each, and reminiscent of traditional food riots uh, of earlier centuries. And these are these are these are very conventional sort of 18th century bread riots. They're led by women. They refuse. They're, they're led by women who are refusing to pay higher prices for food. And in some sense, they kind of are apolitical in that there are various attempts in like basically all of these protests by like organized political organizations to take them over. And basically every single time, the women who are involved are like, no, absolutely not. Uh, there's there, there's a very funny one where I, I think this is the, 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 the I think this is the British one in in 1916-1917 where like a bunch of men show up and the women are like no go home you can't riot with us this is this is our riot now yeah the the, the british case in particular is also interesting because this is the middle of world war 1 and so you know this is the sort of giant presence looming over these 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 uh, uh bread riots and you know the, the government sort of like the, the government in response to this response to widespread hunger like decrees these price controls on food but farmers are just refusing to obey them 
And so women in Mayport organized, and the result was, quote, when one farmer said he did not care what the government said about price controls, there was bedlam. The women rushed the farmer's cart, and the street was, quote, filled with hooting, yelling women and young people, while potatoes, cabbages, and turnips were flying through the air. The example of Mayport soon spread to other parts of the country. These riots were led by housewives, who had filled the front lines and did much of the fighting, although the miners of Cumberland were also active in supporting their wives' efforts, both as at added bodies strengthening the crowds, but also through the Miners Association and other working class institutions. So A, I, I don't know. I, I had to include this specifically because the image of a bunch of people throwing cabbages at farmers is extremely funny to me. Um, <laughs> but the, the other thing I think is interesting here is you, you can start to see the shifts from these sort of 18th century like riots to these ones on a, on a social level where, you know, in, in the 1800s, you're dealing with sort of like town and sort of peasant cultural groupings who are supporting the protest. But by the 1900s, bread riots are being backed by like organized political institutions. Um, there's another one in New York in 1917, which is remarkable for being it, it's self-organized by like. It's remarkable because it, it, it's self-organized by women, even though it, this is it, like the, the part of New York they're in is a socialist party stronghold. But the Socialist Party isn't the, aren't the people who do it. It's the women who are like married in a lot of cases to, to the Socialist Party or and to some extent are in it, but are sort of operating autonomously. And they, they do this thing where they, they sort of like they start setting and forcing these boycotts uh, of like shops that are deemed to be at like price gouging levels and they fight the cops and they do a bunch of stuff. Um, and the, 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 the ones I mentioned in Toronto earlier are interesting because those ones actually do like have an organization in the beginning. But in keeping with sort of the tradition of, of of the bread riot, the organization was the Jewish Women's uh, the Jewish Women's Labor League, and the, these are these are remarkably effective political movements. They win their demands really quickly. Um, I'm I'm going to read one more account because it just rules. Uh, Lester Golden and Tema Kaplan have both examined food riots in Barcelona in 1918, part of a wave of riots which occurred between June 1917 and March 1919 throughout Spain. As in previous cases, these riots erupted because of devastating price inflation, a thing we know nothing about now, this time resulting from the post-war collapse of the economy. The participants were all women, they forbade men's participation, and the actions were led first by radical republicans and then by a small group of female anarcho-syndicalists. The women's demands were simple and straightforward, they demanded lower prices for foods, they attacked bread shops and coal wagons and took over a ship laden with fish. When police and civil guard attempted to break out the women... Crowds of women on the street. The women turned on them, stripping some of the officers of their pants, spanking or thrashing them, and sending yes. them home. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it rules so much. That's that's <laughs> nom 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 nom. It's so good. Perfect, perfect. This is the energy we need in every century that human beings have ever inhabited. It's amazing. Uh, the, the the historians uh, a parenthetical note. After that is, quote, uh, rather undermining their authority in the process, which, yes. I would imagine so, yes. If you are if you are being spanked by a crowd, you have lost control of that crowd. That 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 is that is fair to say. And so they they it takes about three weeks and they they win and prices drop 30 percent. So good. good good for them. That's yeah, that's it, a pretty it, solid look. Hey. 
I think I think most of the people listening would do some hardcore spanking if they could get a thirty percent cut on their grocery bill. Yeah, it's it's a look. I'm just saying, it, it it is much harder to pull down a modern cop's trousers because they're wearing like so much weird shit on top of it. But belt technology has improved tremendously since then. Yeah. However, comma, where there is a will, there's a way. Yep. If I learned one thing from high school, it's that anyone can be pantsed just you just you just have to you just have to you just have to want it hard enough you have to you have want to it believe. more than the person wants to be wearing their pants that's right that's right you have to believe so th- th- there's one more of these bread riots that's worth talking about which also is not conventionally framed as a bread riot but is entirely keeping with everything i've said here uh the february revolution in russia um it, it, so the february revolution is the revolution that actually overthrows the czar uh there's another revolution which is the october revolution which is the one where the bolsheviks come to power but that's a, that's that's a separate one. They're fighting a completely different group of people. The February Revolution has all of the sort of key factors of, of a bread riot, right? There's these massive bread lines. Women are pissed off by a lack of food. The revolution itself is is led by women whose like male comrades had literally told them don't like don't go out and do a protest on that day because this is International Women's Day. But the like all all of the men who are like doing this are are convinced that like the conditions aren't right for revolution, so they try to get everyone to stay home, and everyone's just like no. And, you know, like the, the, the sort of key difference between the like this bread riot and the other bread riots we were talking about is that, you know, the, the, the demands of, the, of the, the, the March on International Women's Day in 1917 are overtly political. Like they, they are chanting down with the czar and they're trying to overthrow the government. And this, you know, th- this is another thing that has this sort of like incredible impact on on how the Bolshevik Revolution is, is sort of working, right? Like. Lenin winds up using peace, bread, and land as one of the sort of like central like Bolshevik slogans because part of because a huge part of what the revolution is is just a bread riot, and that that that's where we're that's that's where we're gonna leave it today with the world uh, just completely and utterly transformed by another bread riot. And next episode we're gonna get to the modern bread riots because those are also interesting. And yeah, we're gonna once again prove everyone who insists that bread riots don't happen anymore wrong a thing that i didn't know existed until i started reading this and i'm now incredibly mad about yeah so go out there and have a bread riot um pants a cop or some other kind of riot you know uh a guacamole riot um uh, uh a mate riot um you could have you could have some kind of corn riot um, you could have a riot over Ortolan. That would be a unique kind of riot. Don't think anyone's ever rioted over that that bird. That that's such a beautiful songbird that eating it is a sin. So you have to like hide your shame underneath a sheet so God doesn't see you eat it. Have a riot over one of those. You know? Yeah, do that. Yep. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. 
Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year Las Culturistas with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with... Dua Lipa! The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I love how often the Holocaust has been trending over the last year. Um, <sighs> that's good. Sign. That's a thing you want to see trending in 2022. Um, it's It could happen here. All right, Chris. Continue with your bread riots. Yeah, we're back. There's more riots. Uh, now, last episode, we talked about historians declaring the end of the bread, death of the bread riot. And like in the 60s and early 70s, like I, I think that this, this is one of the, the ways that you can tell that period people genuinely thought the world was going to get better. was that like they genuinely believed that like the centralized state and like capitalism can always provide foods. So you want to bread riots anymore. You get marches yeah, I going. Mean, you, if you were born in that period, you like grew up. And people were fleeing from Deinonychuses in the street and like getting getting eaten by woolly mammoths. And then by the time you're 40, you've got the telegraph. So I get it, right? I get why people think that that progress was was really yeah, good I mean, back in those areas because they got they wiped out the Deinonychuses. Yeah, I mean, you, you have seen Howard Taft building the pyramids, right? This, this exactly, exactly, exactly. You, you you have you have you have seen the future rise up literally in front of you, and yeah, they, you went from eating mud to Hershey's chocolate. It's, it's it's an incredibly impressive sort of sort of period of modern historical evolution. And you know, and one one of the things you see, like like you'll see like Marxists calling bread riots, primitive rebels doing like populist mob politics that's been like displaced by proper Marxist class politics, and then like every single one of these people was like the most wrong anyone. Like basically from that period until until the moment uh, the, the 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 end of history guy starts writing, they are the most wrong people like on the planet. Well, it's also funny 
to hear that idea that like there there was something primitive about these people's class analysis because if yeah. you look at like the brothers Gracchi in ancient Republican Rome, a lot of the shit they're saying is not at all primitive class analysis. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's pretty developed. <laughs> yeah, and I mean like the the, the Marxists will do some long argument about how like oh they they have they have false consciousness. They're not trying to abolish the class system or whatever. And it's like well I mean like I look at the Mar- the Marxists didn't abolish the class system either. So like yeah. You know, but like yeah, like these are these are very and this is something we're going to be coming back to a lot this episode is that the people doing this are incredibly sophisticated political actors and one of the the, the sort of modern version of this is in the nineteen seventies, uh, not only did bread riots not end, there's a new kind of bread riot, and these riots are collectively known as the IMF riots. Um, and from 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 January nineteen seventy six to October nineteen ninety two, there were riots in. Peru, Egypt, Ghana, Jamaica, Liberia, the Philippines, Zaire, Turkey, Morocco, Sierra Leone, Sudan, Argentina, Ecuador, Chile, Bolivia, Brazil, Panama, uh, Tunisia, Dominican Republic, Haiti, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Mexico, Yugoslavia, Zambia, Poland, Algeria, Romania, Nigeria, Hungary, Venezuela, Jordan, the Ivory Coast, Niger, Iran, Albania, India, and Nepal. (laughs) Were you just doing like the wacko... The Wacko Warner song. It's yes. it's it, that's literally all the pl- I, I I found the chart that has all of them. It's like there's just so many. They just keep happening. And again, that that's only until 1992. Like they they're they're still happening. And and the other thing I should mention is those are just the ones that are called the IMF riots. There's a bunch of other riots, some of which are bread riots that aren't called the IMF riots because they're not really sort of like directly involved with the IMF. And and that, that, that this raises the question of what the fuck is an IMF riot. Uh, and the answer is that, uh, unfortunately, to, to understand why people are throwing Molotovs through bank windows, we have to talk about banking a little bit. Um, I, I, I have talked, I guess, uh. at length. Yeah, I, I apologize. But we will, get, we will get back to the riots, damn it, I promise. We just have to do a little bit of banking. So, yeah, I, I've talked extensively on this show about the crisis of the 70s. And, you know, the short version is that uh, in, in a thing that is completely unrecognizable today, the global economy collapses, inflation skyrockets. Uh, Countries across the global south start taking out these adjustable rate well, – they've been taking out these adjustable rate loans, and then suddenly their interest rates spike, and they start defaulting on these loans. Uh, here's uh, free markets and food riots talking about it. Although the causes of the crisis run deeper, by the 1970s, many smaller nations began to feel the strains of insolvency as a result of a worldwide recession, successive oil price shocks, declining world commodity prices, and accelerating debt service obligations. So basically, like if, if you're a small country, right? The price of everything you need to buy, like oil, is going up, and the price of what you can sell, which is like a commodities like copper or tin, is collapsing. And these lead to what are like these massive, uh, what are called balance of payments crises. And so we should we should talk about what 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 a balance of payments crisis is. And th- this winds up being really important here. There's the story about Che Guevara, like right after, like literally right after the the the, the uh, Cuban Revolution, is he, he, so he goes to the U.S. and he's in a he 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 sits he's in this meeting with a bunch of bankers. And he's trying basically to get Cuba's gold reserves and Cuba's sort of like foreign exchange reserves out of the U.S. The U.S. doesn't steal it. And it was, what's funny about it is all of the bankers who are talking to him, like it, all of them report afterwards, like, well, wow, this guy talks like a banker, not a communist. And the, the, the specifically the reason they were like, oh, hey, this guy talks like a banker is that he knew what balance of payments was. Um, the, the short answer is that a balance of payments crisis is when there's more money flowing out of the country than there is coming into it. And the result of this is that you run out of money. Uh, and particularly the thing you run out of is American dollars, which is the thing that you need to like buy oil. So you get these countries that are massively in debt and they run out of money. 
And the only thing they could do is turn to like is turn to the International Monetary Fund or the IMF, who like the only description of the IMF that I have is that like they're 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 basically like if the cartoon Bank of Evil from Despicable Me like ran the entire world economy. Uh they you know, so the IMF shows up to these countries and is like lol lamau eat shit and they they force these countries to implement like to, to in order to get loans they force them to implement what are called stabilization programs because of the quote conditionality of the loans they have all these like this really technical boring like neoliberal like legal language for it uh the like the the this is this, this is all sort of banker speak for if you want another loans so you can buy food you're gonna have to rob every single person you know and hand them and hand us all your money uh, th- this eventually becomes known as structural adjustment programs. There's all of this sort of technical language disguise what's going on. But what's actually going on is that in order to pay off, in order to pay the bankers for these loans, they are taking food for the mouths of children. Um, yeah, here's a, a more technical, I guess, explanation of what's happening here. Austerity programs include stern measures or shock treatments that trigger market mechanisms to stimulate export production and increase government foreign exchange reserves. So, according to the theory, currency devaluation makes third world exports more competitive in the international market. Reduced public spending curbs inflation and saves money for debt repayment. Privatization of state-owned corporations generate more productive investment and reduce public payrolls. Elimination of protectionism and other restraints on foreign investment lures more, more efficient export firms. Cuts in public subsidies for food and basic necessities help to get prices right. Benefiting domestic producers, wage restraints, and higher interest rates reduce inflation and enhance competitiveness, and import restrictions conserve foreign exchange for debt servicing. So th- this has uh, winners and losers, uh, and the losers are like everyone in the country this is happening to. And this and this is pretty cross cross class. Like these policies, they hurt workers, they hurt peasants, they hurt small shopkeepers. The middle class is annihilated. Uh, just like people who are consumers who buy goods and even the sort of like the, the, the local capitalists just get screwed by this because what, what the IMF is doing is forcing everyone to have lower wages, taking massive benefit cuts and massively spiking the price of food. And, you know, I, 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 I once again remind everyone that uh, this, this, this is explicitly what the Federal Reserve is trying to do to us right now. Like this is, this is the kind of stuff that they're talking about in order to curve inflation is to just make like pay everyone less make everyone take benefits cuts and then increase the price of shit so so the 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 winners of this are like six bureaucrats international investors and like a class of like absolutely horrific large agricultural landowners and this this has about the effect that you would expect it to um between 1976 and late 1992, some 146 incidents of protest occurred, reaching a peak from 1983 to 1985 and continuing to the present without attenuation. Now, the, the authors who are writing this, right, they're writing this in 1994. So when they say they continue to the present without attenuation, they mean 1994. Uh, the thing is, the last one of those riots ended like a week ago. <laughs> oh. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. They're still, they're still going. <laughs> um... So and you know and th- these th- these riots are slightly different than the, the sort of like classical bread riots, right? Because they, they are about the increasing price of food. They're also about the increasing price of fuel or sort of broader austerity measures, so cuts to services, stuff like that. Um, here, here's here's a quote about like what these things actually look like. Um, Demonstrations and riots typically target specific institutions perceived as responsible for the depredations. Marches and protesting crowds converge on 
major thoroughfares and government buildings such as the Treasury or the National Bank or the Legislature or the Presidential Palace. Looters attack supermarkets and clothing stores where fuel and transportation subsidies are part of the austerity package. Buses and gasoline stations are burned. The international dimension of austerity are recognized symbolically in attacks on travel agencies, foreign automobiles, luxury hotels, and international uh, travel agencies. Or, well, that too, but also uh, international agency offices. And, uh, you know, this is going to sound familiar from last episode. Uh, it turns out that just like the 18th century people, the, the, the attacks of these things are, are very targeted. The, the sort of like forms of resistance have changed over time because, you know, this is now we, we, we do have modern political organizations, right? Uh, like we get general strikes, you get sometimes you get just noble bread riots. Uh, sometimes you get these just things that are like large protests and then they turn into riots. And w- what's interesting about them is that these are very sort of. These, these are very sort of cross class movements, right? You have your sort of classical sectors of the urban poor, you have like partic- particularly in the global south you you have your shanty dwellers you have unemployed youth you have small street vendors who are like a crucial sort of element of these things you have like just your guy selling cigarettes on the street um you get you also get like parts of the, the industrial working class you get sometimes you get unions uh a lot of times you get students uh you get like public employees sometimes you get professional groups one of, one of the interesting things i was reading about this is I've, I've read like a few books in this era who were talking specifically and this this is in like the 90s right we're specifically talking about professional groups in Sudan, and it's like it's like okay, it's it's 1994. People are talking about professional groups in Sudan backing rioters against the government. It's 2019. People are talking about professional groups backing protest against the government. It's like it's, I don't know. Like there, there there's this extent to which all of these things, all, all, like the, the IMF riots, have just been happening over and over and over again for about 50 years, and a lot a lot of the elements are are incredibly similar one of the other things that's going on here is that these protests are driven are driven by mass urbanization Uh, typically austerity protests were precipitated by dramatic overnight price hikes resulting from the termination of public subsidies on basic goods and services proclaimed by the government as a regrettably necessary reform urged by the imf and international lenders as conditions for new and renegotiated loans five deaths in the first peruvian protest began a pattern of violence Peru remained a hotbed of austerity protests with students and workers demonstrating against increased food prices in 1997, followed by followed in 1978 by a march of public employees over state layoffs. This protest, though cheered by other public workers watching from surrounding office buildings, was dispersed by police tear gas. So like that that's that's a very sort of Yeah. Yeah, like we the, the, I mean th- this is this was happening this was happening in Peru like last year, right? Actually, was it last year or was it earlier this year? I don't know. Time is fake. And that's actually like the, the other thing that's sort of startling about this is, is like the places that riot are still the places that are rioting in like an, an enormous number of cases. It's it's the same places. Sometimes it's the same people. Um, I think probably the, the most famous protest of the sort of era is. It's called the Caracazo. I'm pronouncing that extremely badly, but my apologies, uh, in Venezuela, which is a reaction to a 1989, like 50 to hundred percent increase in, in train and bus fares. And there are, these are like, these are massive riots, um, at least a hundred and probably like a couple of thousand people are like gunned down by the army. And three years later, a, a relatively unknown Colonel named Hugo Chavez tried to overthrow the government that had carried out the price increases. Uh, Chavez, I you know Chavez is uh, better known for his other works. 
but he he's the sort of tie between the IMF riots and the sort of next phase of of political resistance to this stuff, which is called the anti, which is like known as the anti globalization movement in the sort of the nineties and early two thousands. And the thing that's interesting about these things is that I don't know the IMF riots don't go very well. Like either they lose or at best what they were able to get was like temporarily stall some of these reforms. And I say like reforms, quote unquote, like the sort of neoliberal like slashing benefits. So if they were able to pause them a bit and then they would sort of get restarted after people left the street. But in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, people start winning. Um, Argentina is sort of famously forced to like tell the IMF to fuck off and they default on their loans after this like enormous autonomous uprising in 2001 that like very nearly overthrows the government and forces out like five heads of state. There's the whole sort of pink tide in Latin America. The IMF gets like driven out of a bunch of countries in East Asia. And then in 2008, uh, the entire world economy collapses, which it turns out is bad for everyone. And th- this does this does two things for our story. Uh, the first is that like countries are suddenly going broke again. And because they're un- like just completely broke, uh, the IMF is just back and it's able to sort of enforce programs on places like Greece and Spain and the second thing it did was set off an enormous wave of bread riots and uprisings. And I, I think like most people, if if you tell them that uh, 2008 set off like an enormous wave of like protests, they're, they're immediately going to go, oh, you mean the Arab Spring? And I am talking about that, but that's actually not specifically what I'm talking about here. There, there's, there were like immediately in 2007, 2008, immediately after there was another massive wave of bread riots that every, like just everyone has completely forgotten unless the thing that you do specifically is study bread riots. Um, here, here's from here's from the uh, a piece called A Political Economy of the Food Riot. In 2007 and 2008, the world witnessed a return of one of the oldest forms of collective action, the food riot. Countries where protests occurred ranged from Italy, where pasta protests in September 2007 were directed at a fail at the failure of the Prati government to prevent a 30% rise in the price of pasta, to Haiti, where protesters railed against President Preval's impa- Im- impassive response to the doubling of the price of rice over the course of a single week. Other countries in which riots were reported included Uzbekistan, Morocco, Guyana, Mauritania, Senegal, India, Indonesia, Zimbabwe, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Yemen, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Mexico, and Argentina. And some commentators have estimated that 30 countries experienced some sort of food, some sort of food protest over the period. Now, we've been talking a lot about like food consumers in this because that's mostly the people who are involved in bread riots, but... You know, as, as was happening in the 1700s with the sort of original stuff, like this whole time this is going on, there's there's a sort of massive shift in the global food economy happening where – and th- this has been happening for a long time now, but it's, it's sort of – it's been accelerating the last about half a century, which is that the number of people who are like peasants and who produce food for themselves has been massively declining and people are getting forced into cities. And this means that there's – you know, th- 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 there's there's been a number of other things that have gone along with this uh, – there's been this massive increase in like cattle production, for example. You get all these monocultures. Um, and another thing I think I've mentioned before is the World Trade Organization's like agreement on agriculture, like outlaws agricultural subsidies for the global south. But you know, the US is still allowed to have like farm subsidies, which means that, you know, if, if when you're when you enter these free trade agreements, you get all of this like enormously cheap food from the US that's dumped into all these other countries. 
And, you know, if you're a Mexican farmer, suddenly you can't compete with all of this food from the U.S. because the food from the U.S. is cheap because the American government's subsidizing it, but the Mexican government can't. And this just, like, absolutely annihilates any attempt by a country to maintain food security by, like, producing food for themselves. And this this sort of class of, like, self-sufficient peasant farmers who'd been, you know, they support themselves by producing their own food and selling to the market. These people just get annihilated. And they get forced into what's called sort of casualized labor. They, they you know, they, they, the later version of this is like Uber, right? But they're forced into gig work. They're kicked out of sort of the, the normal economy. And, you know, because they don't have sort of fixed contracts or, you know, I mean, a lot of these people are working with, for no contract, with, with no contracts at all, they're enormously insecure. And once these people are forced into the labor market, like changes in the global economy can make them like almost immediately unable to afford food. Because you know, like if the 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 less sort of economically secure you are, the 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 more the more you're affected by price increases, which is obvious, but it's worth saying because it dictates a lot of like who does bread riots, and yes, and so governments are not entirely like blind to this, and they're concerned that they're going to get overthrown, and so you see a bunch of governments trying to respond with sort of price stabilization stuff. I think the most famous example of this is that like. The Egyptian army like literally controls like an enormous number of Egypt's bakeries and they, they they like directly run them and they directly run them so they can control the price of bread to try to like stop revolutions from happening. But in 2008, they just kind of stopped working. Um, here's the political economy of the food riot again. Over the year between 2007 and 2008, the 130% increase in the global price of maize and the 75% increase in the price of rice with similar price increases in soybeans and other major food commodities. Um, yeah, so there, there, there are these massive food price increases. And this, you know, this does the thing that massive food price increases does, right? There's 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 immediately enormous riots. And there's this cycle that happens where the protesters, you know, the protesters immediately blame the government for the crisis. And then the government is like, well, it's actually not our fault because uh, – you know, it's happening because of things outside of our control, and the protesters are like, oh, it doesn't matter who we elect, uh, they do the same things. And, like, they're both kind of right. Like, the government is just, like, fucking these people, but it's also true that the sort of, like, the whole food system is designed to take, like, the means of food production out of the hands of, like, the workers who need the food and putting them in the hands of, like, you know, enormous corporations and as people in places like Sri Lanka, which we're going to talk more about later, continually emphasize, it, like this, this food sovereignty issue is as much of a political issue, like it, it, it's an incredibly political issue, and it's 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 as much like what's at stake in these bread riots as the sort of IMF and austerity stuff. Okay, this is probably a good place for an ad break, but I can't think of a transition. Uh... Yeah, you know, who isn't allowed to eat is the products and services that support this podcast all actively starving to death so get these deals now while you still can and we're back so all right now we're going to talk a little bit about the Arab spring we're not going to talk an enormous amount about it because that's a whole thing um but if 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 you've been following like the stuff people have written about the Arab spring uh there's an enormous number of people who spend like a lot of their time arguing about whether or not it was actually sparked by food prices. And, you know, you'll get a lot of analysts who argue that like food prices in Tunisia where, where the air spring starts, like weren't really higher than normal. And what you're seeing instead is like, well, it's not actually food prices. It's just that there's a generation of people who've been farmers, but like can't support themselves anymore 
recruitment force into like fighting non-existent wage labor in cities. And like that, that is part of what's happening. But I think there's a, there's a sort of like fundamental misunderstanding of what causes a bread riot, right? Like, you know, as you talked about in like in the first episode, one of the things that causes bread riots is it's not actually necessarily the magnitude of the price increase that causes them, right? What sets, what sets off bread riots is people, fe- is people feeling like they're not getting what they deserve. Now, obviously, like if the, if the price of bread increases by 200%, you're going to get a lot of people going like, fuck this, I worked my ass off and now I can't feed my family. Uh, we deserve better than this. It's time to riot. But sometimes, even if bread prices are stable, you you can you can get a you can get a thing where everyone, like you know, the amount of bread is bad, everything is expensive, and one day someone wakes up and just goes, "Fuck this! I deserve better," and they do a bread riot. And and this is the case, and, and you know, and when, when that kind of thing is happening, right? When 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 you're dealing with, you know, what, like moral economy stuff, when you're dealing with with this gap between like what people think, like. Like what people think their life should be versus the fact that their lives are just absolutely terrible. Even if you like decrease the price of bread, that's not actually necessarily going to like stop people from rioting. And, and if you look at like Occupy, for example, too, like, you know, that's also happening in this period. Like what brings people there isn't necessarily strictly the price of food. It's the sense that like, yeah, I've been screwed by and I've been screwed by the ruling class and I deserve better than this. And and this is this is what you see in Tunisia. And one of the things what you see in sort of Tunisia and Syria is that like a lot of the uprisings, like they have this huge sort of rural core with with this population of this huge population of people who've been kicked out of the agricultural sector, and you know, and like that that is a bread riot, right? And it, it's a bread riot in the sort of double sense of like it's the people who are involved who used to be involved in in grain production and now can't be, and then also that like, you know, pe- people people have hit the sort of expectation gap thing. And I, what what I think is sort of interesting about this is that. These bread riots, these rural bread riots are like, they're, they're the closest thing we have to sort of the classical 20th century revolution, right? Like that, that's one of, that's the thing that causes like the 20th century revolutions are the, the first generation of people who are like, maybe the first like two or three generations of people who come from the countryside into the factories are the people who do revolutions. Um, and, but the thing is, it, this is, this is, this is the 21st century, not the 20th century. Like if you get kicked out of your farm, there's, there's no job in a factory. Like you're just unemployed. And, you know, and th- this changes the dynamics of, of sort of everything. And, and I think, okay, like, like people like broadly know the course of like the Arab Spring and the 2011, 2014 wave of uprisings. They happen, they get crushed largely. But there was another wave of these sort of riots, protests, and uprisings that started in Haiti in like in mid-2018 over this massive fuel price hike. And here is a partial list of places that like people have like rioted in. In, in large numbers since 2018, Haiti, Sudan, Algeria, Honduras, Chile, Iraq, Hong Kong, Iran like four times, Lebanon like three times, Colombia like three times. Uh, a couple of things happened in France. There was uh, Puerto Rico. There was Papua. There was a, there was Indonesia. We're on our second Ecuador one now. There was Catalonia. Like people rioted in the U.S. There there were massive indigenous roadblocks like in Canada. <laughs> Yucamedia Campo went up, like there was stuff in Sakatra, like there were two different ways of protest in India. There was like Belarus, there was Kazakhstan, there was Kyrgyzstan, there's Uzbekistan, there's Mali, there's stuff in Nigeria, there's stuff in Libya, like there's stuff in Sri Lanka we're about to get to. It, 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 this this whole thing has has been happening like everywhere. And, and it's been intensifying in the last in the last sort of like three or four years. Um we're we're now basically in like year four of this cycle. And and you know, obviously like every single one of these protests has their own like local political conditions and like a lot of these aren't even sort of loosely about the price of bread. They're just about sort of other stuff that's happening. 
But like like of, of the uprisings that I mentioned, like something like 15 of them are directly about the price of food or the price of like transited fuel. And we're going to talk a little bit about sort of two of the most recent like protest waves. Um, we're going to talk about Ecuador. And we're going to talk about Sri Lanka because they're, they're two very different kinds of protests, even though they're both kind of bread riots, or at least they're, they're, I mean, they're both very much the modern equivalents of it. Um, but they they look very different, and there's just I think I don't know I think there's like interesting reasons why. Um, yeah, so so we're gonna start with like with Sri Lanka. Um, on on a very basic level, Sri Lanka it has a giant balance of payments crisis. Uh, this is you know sometimes like this is the sort of like large scale political version of famines, right? Like there's plenty of food and fuel in the world, but the government of Sri Lanka does not have dollars to buy it with. Now, the reason the government doesn't have dollars to like buy fuel with is because the government is basically a, like a, a, an incredibly corrupt dictatorship that keeps like importing luxury goods it didn't need, and they did a bunch of like tax breaks on rich people, and suddenly the government was broke, and everyone was like, "Wow, how did that happen? It must have just been the pandemic." And it was like, "No, you, you, like, you gave all the money to rich people," and then, like, as the crisis sort of went on, um, they. The, the government decided to ban fertilizer imports. And so this just meant that people couldn't get fertilizer. So no, it's like farmers just didn't plant food because they didn't yeah, have fertilizer. Yeah, that's a curious decision. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's one of those things you look at it, it's just like, like, what, like, who thought this was a good idea? Yeah, what was the positive end of that game plan here? I mean, it, 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 like, I, the, the only, like, it, okay, so like, I, I, I think what they were thinking is that like, Fertilizer costs dollars, right? We're running out of dollars, so we're going to stop people from spending their dollars, like, on buying this stuff, so we can keep more dollars in the economy. But like, what what are you? What is your long term plan here? If you don't have like anything to get dollars with, or and you also don't have food, so this, uh, to the surprise of exactly zero people, except I guess the government of Sri Lanka causes a food crisis, a food shortage, um. And th- this is a kind of classic, like, this is the ca- a kind of classic, like, situation in which the IMF would intervene in the 70s, and they're intervening now, and, you know, this is, this is a classic, like, struggle against this starting, right? You have the ruling class blowing up the entire economy by, like, fueling debt money into pointless infrastructure projects, and now they're doing these, like, massive austerity measures and trying to get loans to the IMF. This is, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is stuff we understand and we've seen before, um... But this is also this is also a food sovereignty problem, right? The Sri Lankan government has just completely screwed their farmers, which means they have to import even more food. And and you know the the result of this is months and months and months of very impressive sort of cross class protests with like basically every social sector in the streets. And that's both a good thing and also a thing that is kind of a mess because you know like there was civil war. The civil war ended like less than a decade and a half ago, right? So you have people in the streets from sectors who like do not like each other at all, and I don't know. You know, you, you get the thing that happens here, right? You get these moments of like incredible solidarity, and then moments of incredible like, "What the fuck are you guys doing?" And you know, like one of the things that happens a lot in these protests, like in all all protests like this, is like, okay, the protests are like pretty tame for literally months, right? Like it's just people doing protesting. And then uh, cops and, the, and people like allied with the government start attacking the protesters, at which point people like burn down the house of the ruling family. They start throwing people. I think people probably saw the videos, people like throwing cars of like government ministers into rivers, which was a good time. 
and like yeah like that that stuff was a, you know a direct reaction to sort of like the government's violence right um I, you know okay i i can't give like a, a full like detailed political history here because like dear god it is incredibly complicated and i don't understand it very well because you know i, I don't study sri lanka um if, if you want a good account of this uh rohini hensman's political dimensions of the crisis in sri lanka is, is a really good sort of like short like look at what's going on here um and and this is a sort of like this is you know this is a broader trend in like all of these protests right i like as I said, like every single bread riot takes place in its own unique context like sri lanka for example like sri lanka used to have the world's best and largest like mass trotskyite party like they, they were like the trotskyites this is like the only place on earth the trotskyites had like a real like mass political party and they were like a part of the real political process and then they like sold out the working class and entered a bunch of governments that like did terrible stuff. And, you know, okay, that, that that's like a local context that doesn't happen anywhere else. But, you know, every single one of these states, right, is, is embedded in global capitalism. And that means that every state is affected by the sort of like broader economic trends and sort of bureaucratic structures that hold everything together. They're affected by the IMF, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank. And the thing that this means is that the timings of uprisings and riots tend to synchronize with each other in reaction to sort of broader like economic forces. And the product of this is way, is these sort of like periodic waves of uprisings. And so to close this out, we're going to talk about the most recent of these. Well, it might actually not be the most recent of these by the time this goes up. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk about Ecuador. Um, the situation in Ecuador is very different from what's happening in Sri Lanka. Uh, the, the, the biggest difference, I guess, is that, Instead of sort of like waiting for conditions to get bad enough that like an uprising happens like more or less spontaneously, which, which is kind of what happened in 2019 in Ecuador. There, there's, a, there's a very huge protest there, um, but they were largely spontaneous. But instead of like waiting for it, people were just like, wait, what if we just called one of these? And by, by people here, I specifically mean the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador or CONAI. And... You know, okay, okay, as we've seen through this whole sort of thing, right? Like, bread riots, like, adapt to the political organizations around them. And in Ecuador, we're dealing with a quintessentially modern form of political organization, which is the Indigenous Confederation. And I, I, I guess I should sort of, like, preface this a bit with, like, the, 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 the specific form of Indigenous Confederation in, in Latin America that emerges in this period is, like, a different thing than older ones, because there, there have been Indigenous Confederations for a long time. This is, like, a this is, a, this is a very specific, like, political thing that emerged across Latin America in, in sort of the 70s and the 80s. Well, really, really started showing up in the 80s as a result of, like, a lot of things. One of which was, like, how shitty the old, like, Marxist-Leninist vanguard groups, like, were on indigenous issues. And one of the, one of the groups that forms in this period is Konai. And Konai is one of the world's most militant, like, indigenous uh, federations. And since their founding in in uh, 1986, they've called half a dozen uprisings against neoliberal governments, and I think I think they knocked off like three presidents, which is a a pretty impressive track record. And on July 13th, 2022, faced with skyrocketing inflation on like basic consumer goods and a like really shitty like far right government, they staged another one. Um, and and this is another sort of, I don't know, like the the thing is interesting about this is is that it's. It's part general strike, like part street protest, part riot, and part just like mass march from the from the sort of periphery of Ecuador to the core. And by periphery and core, I mean in the sort of metaphorical sense. Like it's a bunch, it's a bunch of indigenous and peasant groups from all over the country, just like marching on, descending on the capital, Quito. 
And this is a this is a complicated process. Like the you know okay like the left everywhere has like political divides, and mostly they're kind of nonsense in a lot of ways. Like okay like th- there's ideological divides and there's personal divides and whatever. But like Ecuador's left has has real political divides, and these aren't these aren't like sort of petty ideological like personal stuff. Like they're like they were caught under under the sort of previous like old like leftist pink tie governments of Rafael Correa like. There are like soldiers and cops who are beating the shit out of indigenous ecological protesters. And, you know, this means that like, yeah, you know, okay, so, so Carrera's like party's running for president again, or is Carrera's not running, but Carrera's party's like running in an election, right? And, you know, this means that like, yeah, okay, like maybe you're both leftist, right? But, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, fuck no, like I'm not voting for these guys. These are the guys who like sent the army against their anti-mining protests. And so, you know, the, the, the thing, the thing that's interesting here is that like, like, these protests don't even pull together the entire Ecuadorian left. Um, the, the, and there's like other stuff going on here too. Like there, there's some of the unions that went on strike in 2019, like don't go on strike this time because of some like, political stuff that's happening. But the thing, the thing about Konayi that's really impressive is that they're, they're still organized enough and they still like they're organized enough that they're able to just take control of parts of cities. And they have a lot of allies and supporters amongst their students and workers in Quito. And this means that when the government makes this enormous mistake and arrests Konayi's like kind of newish leader, uh okay, this guy's name <laughs> this guy's name I I guess in Spanish it's like Leonidas Isa. This guy's name is Leonidas. And he's the head of the um he's the he's, he's the head of, of Konayi's Indigenous Federation. Um and he's he's been a protest leader. He was a protest leader in 2019. That's how he got elected to like head this organization. And they arrest him on day two of the protest. And this is a catastrophic mistake. The protest just like explode. And you know, by 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 like a week in, I, I think that the, the government's claiming they were doing 50 million dollars of damage a day, which I'm not actually sure I believe that because governments and corporations do this too when they're talking about like losses from like strikes. They tend to overemphasize how much damage is done because it makes them like look better in the press and it makes the protesters look worse but they 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 they're able to damage like significant parts of the economy and by june 30th like they kind of win basically the government's forced to negotiate with them and they don't get all of their demands but they get price decreases for like fuel and gasoline which is like a huge part of why these protests happened in the first place they get bans on mining and drilling in indigenous and protected areas. They get like strength and price controls. They get like rural loan forgiveness, like interest rate decreases. They get subsidies for farmers. They get subsidies for families. They get they 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 manage to get the government to like declare a state of emergency, a health emergency over COVID. It's like this is this is impressive stuff. And you know, and the the other part of this is that they're like, okay, the agreement is that we will stop protesting if you do this, and if you don't do this, we're going to do this again. Cool. So. Yeah, I, I guess I guess my to sort of wrap this up. I uh, there's there, there's an American proverb that is really common among sort of like American China watchers, which is that I. Uh, so supposedly the Chinese word for crisis is composed of two characters: danger and opportunity, and it's like not true as like linguistic and anthropological analysis of China. That that's not what that's not what the characters mean. But everyone like everyone in the U.S. like political establishment like believes this, right? And, and you know, but like as as an analysis of China, it is completely useless. As an analysis of the U.S. of the American psyche, it's incredibly valuable, right? Because this 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 is the way the American ruling class thinks. It's it's every single crisis is both a danger and an opportunity. And 
that's something that we, in some sense, also have to do because that's, you know, th- these are the sort of situations that we're in, right? Bread riots are a thing that just, they happen, right? They will continue to happen. They have been happening for thousands of years. Like, presumably they will happen for thousands of more years. And there, there's no use sort of like either pretending that they don't happen or making these sort of moral or tactical arguments like for or against them because they just happen. And the the, the question that we're, that we're faced with is what are we actually going to do about it, right? Are we going to sit them out? Are we going to side with the state and repressing them in the name of sort of like stamping out color revolutions or like providing order or stability or like protecting small businesses? Or are we going to, you know, take to the streets and fight alongside them to sort of break the system that creates them? And this the second question from here is if we're going to do this, how? And what what we what we've seen from Ecuador in the past month or so is that if you take the fight to them and you are sufficiently organized, you can win. And that means the question now, as our food prices continue to increase, as food prices are only going to continue to increase, what are we going to do? And yeah, that that's all I got. I have I have a single question. Yep. What are we going to do? Well, I'm I'm kind of bummed we never brought up our good friend Pete Buttigieg and his uh <laughs> bread his bread price, price fixing, fixing ordeals. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that, that that that's kind of a sign of just like how kind of like I guess you could say masculinized like our culture has been that like people didn't riot over that. Cause like, that is a thing. Like if, 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 Pete, if you said Pete Buttigieg back to like a, 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 a late 1700s Fretz village and he tries to do this thing, like he, he, he does a systematic like bread, bread price fixing, right? Like all of these people would have been getting hit by rocks. So yeah, do that again. Uh, Yeah. Do that again. Wow. Do that again. Just bare ins- just brazen incitement. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, that is it for us today. We love to incite things, folks. Until next time, go incite yourselves. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year Las Culturistas with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with Dua Lipa. The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that's increasingly about things that are actually kind of already happening. Um, and today it's going to be it's going to be one of those. We're talking about in the kind of uh, the uptick in rhetoric around queer exterminationism that's happened. Uh, most of the stuff is what this is, is discussions and legislative proposal and rhetoric that was really kicked off last month uh, during Pride Month, specifically because of uh, the Roe v. Wade ruling. That really opened the door on a few not good possibilities. Um, but because we're going to be talking about some more grim stuff today, we're going we're gonna to open with something slightly more funny. Um, and that's friend of the pod, uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Um, now, w- with me today is, is Chris and James. Greetings. Hi. So, Peterson, he got... He got really mad at Elliot Page, um, and now does not really have a Twitter account, <laughs> and it's pretty funny. Uh, and a few days after he was banned for continuing to misgender Elliot Page, he released a video that can only be described as a supervillain monologue, um, as as a part of his new partnership with Daily Wire Plus, the hit new streaming service. Um, and just because I think it's funny. We're just gonna we're just gonna play a few clips of of this of this evil supervillain monologue because it's really funny and then it'll circle back to kind of our topic towards the end. So, ah, uh, speaking speaking of friend of the pod Peterson, here's here's our here's our one of the clips that you've probably already heard if you're if you're terminally online, but it's incredibly funny. If I am required to acknowledge that my Tweet violated the Twitter rules. What rules, you sons of bitches? Ah, good old, good old Peter said. You know, the, the, the thing I've always been sort of like, that clip in particular, it's like, I, I don't know if, if I was trying, I don't know if I could emulate just this, it, it sounding like you've edited together 16 clips of yourself. I know, right? My tweet violated the Twitter rules. It's like, it's, his speech pattern is so bizarre. 
<laughs> and also, like, in the in it's, the video was like nine minutes long. Like, preceding that line, he explained what rule he broke around misgendering and harassment. <laughs> so, like, he ex- he explained the exact rule. Ah, <laughs> uh, but we always get more Peterson if you ask for it. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, extremely funny. Uh, He's actually sneering as well. If you watch the video, like his whole face just. Yeah, he is is going all in on the bit. He's doing like Ozymandias, but hammed up. It's it's frankly impressive. This is this one's also also a decent one. I am employing this awkward and impossible naming style because it is now apparently mandatory and am probably doing it wrong nonetheless, as you're doing it wrong is the whole point of what has been made mandatory. But also, I'm trying to make a point. I've essentially been banned from Twitter as a consequence. I say banned, although technically I have been suspended. But the suspension will not be lifted unless I delete the hateful tweet in question and I would rather die than do that. I <laughs> <laughs> would rather die. Uh. That means that you have a healthy relationship to the platform of Twitter. Um, there's also yeah. this this great clip of him talking about how, like, I'm actually happy how my Twitter account is gone now. Twitter is insignificant in the final analysis. And you're like, what the fuck does that mean? What what fi- what final analysis are you talking about? What do you what do you mean the final analysis analysis of what? Do, like, what is? Oh, oh, it's it's pretty funny. There's. There is two more clips from this rant that I want to do, which kind of are going to get more to the heart of our issue today. Um, great. They're they're not great. They actually are kind of they kind of suck. Uh, so without further ado, here's our good doctor friend. And finally, with regard to the final phrase, criminal physician, I must say that I've had some postcoital, so to speak, regrets about that phrase. It is clearly the case that the surgical operation performed by the butchers who butchered Elliot slash Ellen was legal. So, was it criminal or not? Were the operations undertaken by the fascist physicians who carried out the Nazi medical experiments legal? Yes, under the laws of the time. But were they criminal? I'll leave that question up to you to answer. So that's pretty gross for a lot of reasons. Um, one, the kind of historical context of using Nazis to compare to your own uh, transphobia is a little dicey when you consider how what the Nazis did to trans people and to like yep. <laughs> queer books. Like, it's, yeah, he's advocating for the Nazi position here. Yeah, was yeah, great and, like, stuff. There's been so many bans on queer books this. Like just in the past two years, uh, the the Library Association tracked almost sixteen hundred books that were challenged in twenty twenty one, the highest number since the organization began tracking book bans in the past twenty years. So, talk talking about like the Nazi scientists, they're like you, like you have is his 
his historical context of obviously is incredibly lacking or he's just a or he's just a grifter i think honestly he's just kind of i think he's just kind of lost it i i think i don't even think he's fully a grifter i think he's just kind of not understanding what's going on anymore um because you can watch like interviews and stuff where pe people can try to use reasoning and logic with him and you can watch his brain start to process it but it's just like otherwise he just doesn't think in any sort of logical manner or put his words or his like stream of consciousness into any historical context he just says what he wants and he's used to people just taking that as a fact um he's used to like regurgitating bad joseph campbell and people being like oh yeah you sound smart would no he's actually not he's <laughs> um but man it's it's yeah the the whole germany nazi scientist experimentation thing is incredibly incredibly frustrating um i i don't even know what else to like say about uh, say about that because i mean there, even that that line you could focus on for a while be like compare how like the history of medical documentation of like transness and the nazis how that's like such a big thing is that the nazis destroyed so much medical research on gender transitions losing like like decades and decades of research that we're only now starting to regain Incre incredibly gross but there's this one 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 last one last clip i wanted to play of 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 our of, of our good doctor and are we degenerate in a profoundly threatening manner i think the answer to that may well be yes so that's not great <laughs> He really is like just advocating for the Nazi position I, at every yes. turn. Like yes, he's just continuing to advocate for fascistic reasoning, um, fascistic views of decadence and degeneracy, in so much as it is a threat to civilization and a threat to Western society. And then he goes on in this clip to justify Russia's invasion of Ukraine because the U.S. is helping Ukraine, which makes Ukraine degenerate by proxy. So Russia's doing a war on degeneracy, and that's like th that's his argument. It's like that's his level of logical reasoning. Yeah, yeah which which is funny because it's like if, if you ever heard any of the like radio because every once in a while there's, there'll be radio clips of just like Ukrainian and Russian soldiers yelling at each other, and it's just both of them calling each other gay over and over again. And it's just like really <laughs> like Jesus this Christ. is this is uh, uh, we should no, one bring, side is woke. Bring back that level of discourse to America. <laughs> <laughs> well um we're gonna take a quick break and then we will come back to talk about our other really close friend of the pod uh matthew walsh so stay stay tuned for that oh god okay i have i have one question for everyone here um what what's how how woman what what is what is that featherless biped <laughs> Okay, great. <laughs> Behold, a woman. <laughs> um, so, what are we talking about, Matt Walsh? Um, obviously, last month he released uh, a pretty poorly made transphobic documentary that was basically just clips of him getting owned by like actual doctors uh, for not understanding like basic ontology and medical reasoning. Um, the documentary was just. Uh, uh, other friend of the pod, J.K. Rowling, just expressed support for the documentary. So yeah, if that's if, if that's not an indicator that like turfism is just like 
a direct preamble to open fascism, I don't know what is. Because I mean, Matt Matt Walsh jokingly describes himself as a fascist, but that's because his 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 beliefs actually are fascistic. Like he said, it's one of those jokes that only is funny because everyone agrees on the central premise. Like it's it's that it's that it's that type of humor. Um, so like. J.K. Rowling just endorsing an open fascist. <laughs> so, the, the, I'm not going to talk about the documentary in depth here because it's not that good and it doesn't really make any points that need to be refuted. It it, it talks about how like it talks about how like uh, how uh, puberty blockers are um, sterilization uh, uh, drugs, which is 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 not the case long term. When you're on them, yes, you cannot you cannot do that because it's obviously inhibiting. Your your uh, hormones, but once you go off puberty blockers, you can procreate again. Um, which which also I, I, I just I just want to take a second here to to look at this position, which is that okay, so puberty blockers are sterilization things, right? Are like okay, so this is their argument: is sterilization, right? Who are you giving puberty blockers to? Children. Why the fuck do yeah, you but, care? Well, I mean, that like children. The, the, it's like, well, yeah. I mean, they're arguing. It's like the oh, argument it's is, like is a, that, blah, that blah, it'll blah, make them it'll, it'll make like, them permanently sterilized. Yeah, it's like it's basically yeah, like really you, you're castrating these kids by giving them puberty blockers. Which no, that's not how that works. You're you're just arguing in bad faith. It doesn't matter. But anyway, I, I don't want to talk the, about the docu- documentary in in length because it's not interesting enough to talk about. Uh, but I will- Is this a documentary, real quick, is this the one where he, like, goes to, like, quote-unquote, the country of Africa and, oh, like, yes. asks people, yeah, yes. and then poorly Pretty mistranslates. Extremely stuff. racist. Um, yeah, yeah. Great to see J.K. Rowling, like, known uh, non-racist lining up. Yeah. Like, behind these essentialist tropes of Africans. The creator, the creator of Kingsley Shacklebolt and Cho <laughs> Chang. <laughs> Cho Chang. Yeah, like- just... The most cringe, uh, yeah. That's what we yeah. call a rich white woman moment. Um, yes. All right. So, but we are going to talk about some other things Matt Walsh has been doing, specifically how he has increased uh, exterminationist rhetoric into his discussions around trans people. So, we're going to open by talking about uh, detransitioners. So, the the vast majority of real detransitions, uh, which are very rare like there's very few of them especially considering there's already very few numbers of trans people but yeah, isn't it like the, sub one percent or something yeah it's, it's it's very very few um but the vast majority of people who do make the choice to detransition uh are usually due to experiencing aggressive transphobia um and and the idea of the detransitioner has been inflated and used as a straw man to attack the trans community just by and large, with with many documented cases of TERFs or far-right activists creating, like, fake sock puppet accounts, pretending to be detransitioners to write like, horrifying but fictional stories. That, that that happens a lot. There's a really famous case on Reddit of, of an alleged detransitioner who was found out to just be, like, an alt-right troll. Um, and this all really sucks, because the people who do detransition because they realize it's just not for them are generally pretty rad people who continue to be very much pro-trans because they do understand the fluid nature of gender and gender expression through this entire process like but and anyways when quote tweeting an alleged detransitioner expressing regret of medical decisions that they made matt walsh said this quote we can't just oppose the transition of children. Yes, that's particularly evil, but it's also evil to do it to anyone of any age. 
This young woman was 19, a legal adult, when she was mutilated. Does that make it okay? Obviously not. Put it another way, it should be illegal for doctors to do this to anyone of any age. It should be illegal for anyone of any age to transition, period. So, this demonstrates the jump from no one, sh like the, the, the rhetoric of no one should transition until they're an adult to no one should be allowed to transition at all. And it came just as quickly as uh, the trans community was telling you it would. This, this jump is not a big one. It is very easy to say no, no hormones until you're 18 to saying no, no hormones at all. Um, and that's, that's what we're entering into. Walsh's rhetoric is increasingly exterminationist um, and eliminationist, just saying that like his, all of his preferred policies would result in the total prohibition of trans identity and the criminalization of any gender-affirming care. Um, these people are fundamentally opposed to having any agency of your own body, whether that's hormones, whether that's abortion, right? Like, all of these people get mad just when they see someone with colored hair. Like, they, they don't like someone's ability to have bodily autonomy. That's their, that's one of their core politics. And you see this a lot, especially when it comes to, like, trans men, because there's this notion that their, that their bodies exist in service of cis straight men. Right. And anything that gets in the way of that is an attack on cis men in general and all of patriarchal society. It's like very, very, very much like regular misogyny, but with an added bonus of transphobia. Conservative activist Christopher Rufo made a tweet a few days ago with a picture of Elliot Page pre-transition with a caption that says, this is what they took from you. Right. It's, it's like this notion that their bodies belong to you, a cis man, and by them cho choosing to change their bodies as they see fit, that's an attack on their body's access to you. Um, it's, 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 it redoes a whole bunch of misogyny, does, it does a whole bunch of, of really bad transphobia. Um, it's a really gross package, but it, 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 it hits on a lot of points of like this type of patriarchal conservative brain and i think this, this this even carries out into like hatred of trans women as you know as trans women are seen as predators so they hate trans women to protect cis women right like you see it's all of this like possession right it's, it's it's this possession of the body of a female so you need to protect it against the creepy trans women right it's like it's it's all of this idea of like owning women's bodies is is essential to a lot of these ideas of transphobia so we're gonna see a lot more stuff about how it's gonna change from no hormones no transition until you're 18 to no hormones no transition until you're 25 to no hormones and no transition at all this past year we've seen many proposed felony health care bans for trans youth um, said bills have passed in multiple states like Alabama, which means that it's going to forcibly detransition teens across the state. In Missouri, there's a similar bill in the works titled the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act, um, which currently applies to individuals younger than 18, but Missouri physicians and healthcare providers under the bill would be prevented from recommending gender-affirming care to patients who are under 18, and there has already been discussion in legislative sessions to extend the bill past the age of 18. While debating the bill seeking to restrict access to gender-affirming care, some lawmakers suggested that the medical interventions like hormones be withheld from uh, transgender and non-binary individuals until 
they're 25 years old. And during a public hearing for the House Bill 2649, uh, a psychologist, Lori Hayes, testified that she believes young adults under the age of 25 are unable to fully comprehend the dramatic and drastic and irreparable, quote-unquote, changes to their bodies that will they will undergo if they receive gender-affirming medical treatments like puberty blockers and hormone therapies. Also while testifying, Hayes, uh, the psychologist, said that she supported <laughs> conversion therapy. So Great. that's su- surprising to nobody. Um, yeah. Or it, it shouldn't be. It also takes those people to the point where they're not necessarily eligible for their parents' health care, right? So, like, I think 26 is the time when you can, when you're yeah. too old, you age out. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah. again, like, it's a backdoor, like, prohibition on transitioning for a lot of people. Yeah, yes, it's it's just trying to stop it at all. It's, you can't, you can't take their word for it. <laughs> like, they just, yeah, they just don't want you around. That's it. Like, they want you to, to, kill yourself they or they want you just to, to go away or not be trans like that's that's the, that's what they want it's obviously i'm gonna do a few just a, uh, journal of american medical association found that gender affirming health care include including puberty blockers and hormones between the ages of 13 and 20 was associated with 60 percent lower odds of moderate or severe depression and 73 percent lower odds of suicidality Another study published last year by the Trevor Project found that among transgender non-binary minors, hormone therapy associated with nearly 40% lower odds of recent depression and suicide attempts. So they just want to ban the things that make you more likely to live, right? They, they just don't want you around. That's the actual message. <sighs> so back, back to just kind of, extra- speaking of just not wanting you around, um, we're going to do some updates on protect Texas kids. Uh, the the extremely open, extremely transphobic, openly Christian fascist. Their, their words, not mine. Group based in Texas who organized a lot of events to harass either drag shows or harass pride events last month. Uh, its leader Kelly Niedert. I'm gonna, that's how I'm going to say it. Um, tweeted a few weeks ago, quote, let's start rounding up people who participate in pride events. Huh. I, w- I wonder what she means by that. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, mm. I wonder what, I wonder what that means. Surely doesn't mean she just wants to kill all gay people. Oh, oh, it does. Okay. Um, an- an- another tweet from the main Protect Texas Kids account was, Today's protest went well. No children seemed to be in the drag show, but there were a bunch of adults wearing mouse ears and watching the men dressed up as Disney princesses dance around. Totally normal and not weird, right? So, it's obviously not about protecting kids, right? Like, it's, they, that's not the focus. That's not, that's not the focus of their tweet. That's not the focus of what they want, right? Protecting kids, quote-unquote, is a cheap excuse to, just to want to hate gay people and want gay people to go away. That's, that's, all, that's all it is. We've been, like, it's... We're kind of retreading the same ground here. But, man, it's, it's so... I, it is still frustrating how many people, like, fall for the bit, it's not it's not, not about protecting kids. It's not about saving kids from groomers. You can look at all of the sexual abuse in evangelical churches, Catholic churches, it's Christian summer camps, whatever. It's not it's not about protecting kids. They don't give a single fuck. It's about wanting gay people to go away. 
Now, both Kelly Niedertz and Protect Texas Kids accounts, which they used to organize their Christian fascist events, both of those got banned in mid-June. Kelly has got banned for saying, let's start rounding up people who participate in Pride events. But this this extends beyond Texas. This extends beyond Twitter.com, right? Obviously, these people were just using Twitter to organize, so it already extended out into the real world. But it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not just Texas either. See, I think it's... Uh, Congressional candidate Mark Burns, who is a, a pro-Trump pastor, was running for South Carolina uh, House District. He called for the execution of LGBTQ and trans people by using uh, grooming rhetoric. And then he laid out exactly how executions could legally be done. So this type of like state enforced genocide. Let's let's play this. Let's play a clip. The LGBT transgender grooming our children's minds is a national security threat because it is ultimately designed to destabilize the republic we call the United States of America. That's why when I'm elected, I don't want to just vote. I want to start holding people accountable for treason to the Constitution. I am going to push to reenact HUAC. HUAC is the House of Un-American Activities Committee. It was a real committee that was formulated back in the 50s and is a, a committee that we should reenact that starts holding these people accountable for treason. We need to hold people for treason, start having some public hearings and start executing people who are found guilty for their treasonous acts against the Constitution of the United States of America, just like they did back in 1776. You know what, South Carolina? This is our guy. <laughs> no. So that was an amazing uh, the way he misspoke and called it the House of Un-American Activities. It just sounds <laughs> like a fun place. So that's not ideal, is it? Um, that kind yeah, of sucks. That seems bad. <laughs> yeah, that was really out there. He's uh, yeah he's genocide advocating. It's just it's just more. It's mainstream. It's trying. They're trying to mainstream it the political ability to advocate genocide, right? And some of them, it's not, some of them, it's not fully catching on yet, right? It, it's, it, we're on the on-ramp to this. Um, the South Carolina pastor was defeated by the incumbent uh, representative, William Timmons, in the GOP primary for the state's fourth congressional district, but Pastor Mark Burns still received 24% of the vote. So that's still a lot of people, that's still a lot of people voting for that. And that number, I don't think it's going to shrink. Yeah, and like, and it's also it's also worth noting that like everyone loses. Imp- like, it is so unbelievably hard to beat an incumbent in yeah. primary. Like, it just it's yeah. So like, it, like even even if he was just a normal guy with like regular politics, he would have lost that election. So still, yeah, yeah. So it's not actually a referendum on his popularity, like the popularity of what he's saying. It's. <laughs> 24% of the vote. Yeah. It's worth noting that, like, even here in Southern California, right, where it's supposedly, like, very liberal, we had a candidate for sheriff's office who is the de- was a deputy city attorney and was endorsed by the Union Tribune, just openly spewing, like, transphobic groomer stuff at, uh, yeah. at public meetings and getting endorsed by the local newspaper. They rescinded their endorsement later, but it, this isn't just like a, a red state thing if people think that that is that. No, that's, I would say that'd be a lot more common than people who run for sheriff, who generally tend to be more conservative because they're running for sheriff. Um, yeah, true. All right, well, 
Let's let's have an ad break and then we'll come back to talk about uh, wait, talk about Roe v. Wade and and the attack on future rights including the ability to have same-sex relationships. Oh wow, what a fun time we have today. All right, we are we are back. So after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last month, there was an immediate push for anti-gay and anti-trans legal challenges using the same legal logic against the right to privacy based off of the, the traditions deeply rooted in our nation's history, quote-unquote. So this was like undoubtedly going to happen, right? We've been, we've been proposing that this was a possibility for a while. But it was definitely made worse by Justice Clarence Thomas, friend of the pod, who argued in a concurring opinion that the Supreme Court should, quote, reconsider its past rulings codifying rights such as the right to use contraception, the right to have a same-sex relationship and same-sex marriage, invoking Griswold, Lawrence, and Oberfeld. Three cases having to do with Americans' fundamental right to privacy, due process, and equal protection. Thomas wrote, quote, we have a duty to correct the error regarding these established in those precedents. Which, pretty grim. Pretty grim uh, framing there, because that's a bad sign. Um, and we're already seeing stuff like this in effect, actually. We don't need to wait for the Supreme Court to make rulings. States are already starting to do this exact thing. Uh, in an ongoing Alabama lawsuit that cites Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, about medically detransitioning all trans teenagers, there is this uh, deeply threatening turn of phrase, quote, no one adult or child has the right to transitioning treatments not deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. Ha! <sighs> ha! Huh. Interesting how they put adult or child there. Isn't that, isn't that intriguing? Yeah, and it's also fun how the, the deeply rooted in our nation's history thing is now just sort of like... Here, here is the word that you say to let you do fascism. It's like, yep. oh, hey, do you know what is yeah. deeply rooted in, in our in our nation's uh, 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 tradition and history? Shooting congressmen. This is a thing <laughs> that has been done many times. Like, I mean, again, like, like this. It's like, like this is this is the whole like this whole thing. It's just like, it's it's so the, the whole thing is it's so incredibly sort of nakedly transparent and cynical. And like this is you know it's it's the standard fascist thing right we're like we're gonna create some sort of mythical past and then we're gonna like resurrect whatever fucking things existed back then it's like oh hey what actually existed back then yeah uh, I don't know people tried to kill the government all the time like they're really they're really playing from like the <sighs> lower keys t traditionalist framework here um they're they're doing all the bits we thought they would do it's not great uh late last month during the end of Pride. Texas Republican Party unveiled its updated official position on LGBTQ issues, defining homosexuality as, quote, an abnormal lifestyle choice, unquote, and also opposing, quote, all efforts to validate transgender identity. The party's new official stance on LGBTQ issues was unveiled during Pride Month, and as advocates fight against a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in states across the country this year, more than 340 bills, according to the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest LGBTQ advocacy group on the legal front, thousands of Republican activists met at the party's biennial convention in Houston in mid-June to agree to the party's platform on a range of issues, including the rejection of the 2020 election results. <laughs> And a call to a repeal the 1965 <laughs> Voting Rights Act. No. <laughs> which was enacted to prevent discrimination against black voters. Ah, this is... 
I would say this is a mask off moment, but they've never had the mask on in the first yeah, like, place. Yeah, people, people have, like, that's, that's, like, that specific one, that is a thing, like, like, half of the Republican Party's platform has been people suing about the Voting Rights Act exactly, for, like, exactly. 50 years. It's not actually mask off, it's just that they're doing it louder than they were doing it before. Yeah. The section titled Homosexuality and Gender Issues, um had the party stating that LGBTQ people should have no legal protection from discrimination and, in fact, suggested intent to ensure people's ability to do hate speech and hate crimes. Part of the 40-page resolution reads, quote, Homosexuality is an abnormal lifestyle choice. We believe there should be no granting of special legal entitlements or creation of special status for homosexual behavior, regardless of state of origin. And we oppose any criminal or civil penalties against those who oppose homosexuality out of faith, conviction, or belief in traditional values. Ha. Hmm. Ouch. I, I, just, I, I, I just want to put it on the record here that like the number of my, a number of my friends who have been attacked like in the last three months is it's a lot. And I got I got called yeah. uh, I got a, I got called a faggot for the first time in the streets of Portland a few months ago. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's, 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 it's it's accelerating. Fun. It's it's going it's 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 going. Um, but yeah, I mean specifically, I think a lot of the the this the last part of that resolution there about you know opposing any civil penalties against those who oppose homosexuality out of faith. I think that's def that's probably definitely referencing Steadfast Baptist Church, the church that just opens that openly advocates the genocide of queer people, uh which we've talked about in our in our last uh, City of Hate episode. Yeah, I, um, I think I think they're also trying to go back to like the whole like cake bullshit thing. Oh yeah, obviously. And like stuff like yeah. that. It's like it's we yeah. honestly, we are so past the cake problem now because now they just want to just yeah. Now they just want to murder. Kill they, yeah. they they just want to do like mass. They just want like, to do mass genocide. Like I'm so over cakes. Like, and in the trend of increasing the age barrier of gender affirming healthcare into adulthood, the Texas Republicans called for the ban of gender affirming healthcare, including the distribution of puberty blockers or hormone suppressing therapies and the uh, and uh, the performance of gender affirming surgeries to anyone under the age of 21. So that is the new Texas Republican official position is that these things should be banned uh, for under the age of 21. And that's not a that's not a hard cap. They're going to keep raising that cap as often as they can. And as proof, I will offer up the past 35 minutes of episode. Like everything we've said <laughs> in the past 35 minutes is supporting the opinion that that cap they want it to go up. <sighs> yeah. Near I'm sure the they also simultaneously advocate for like heterosexual relationship age of consent to just to drop. Oh yeah, like 12 yeah. 12 years old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um Freedom. Speaking of speaking of Texas, near the end of June, uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, uh, who sent his office home in the celebration of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, said that he will defend Texas's anti-sodomy law if the Supreme Court revisits Lawrence v. Texas. I'm going to play an extremely frustrating clip here. Here's a fun time. I'm sure you read uh, Justice Thomas's concurrence where he said that uh, there were a number of other of these issues, Griswold, uh, Lawrence, and Ogafell, that uh, he felt uh, needs to be uh, looked at again. Uh, obviously, the Lawrence case came from Texas. That was what outlawed sodomy. Uh, would you, as attorney general, be comfortable 
defending a law that once again outlawed sodomy, that questioned Lawrence again, or Griswold, uh, or gay marriage, uh, that came from the state legislature to, to put to the test what Justice Thomas said? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of issues here, but certainly the Supreme Court has stepped into issues that I don't think there was any constitutional provision dealing with. They were legislative issues. And this is one of those issues, and, and there may be more. So I, it would depend on the issue and depending on what state law it says at the time and what but, was overruled. Just, just for the sake of time here, you wouldn't rule out that if the state legislature passed the exact same law that, that Lawrence overturned on sodomy, uh, you wouldn't have any problem then defending that and taking that case back to the Supreme Court. Yeah, look, my job is to defend state law, and, and I'll continue to do that. That is my job under the Constitution, and, and I'm, I'm certainly Would willing to support able to do that. So, first of all, in, in this clip of Ken Paxton, he looks like a zombie. He's, he's, I don't know what's going on with his face, but his eye, his eye keeps twitching in a way that looks really uncanny. He looks like, he like... Look at look at this man's face. Look at what is going on. <laughs> That's an unfortunate pause. No, he looks like that in motion too. It's not yeah. an unfortunate pause. He just looks. <laughs> there is something going wrong with Ken Paxton. We need to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> but also all of that stuff about make uh, enforcing laws against uh, sodomy, making gay sex illegal. They they don't want gay people to fuck is what they're actually saying. Um. And if you do, they want to send you to jail. Um, so that's something that Ken Paxton wants wants to do. Um, wrapped in very flowery language about defending the laws on record, that laws that you are enforcing, therefore you're making the laws in effect. Um, ha. So one one aspect of this that I want to touch on again before we close out. In our, in our City of Hate episodes about the Christian fascists in Dallas attacking drag shows and Steadfast Baptist Church, uh, and even in some of the stuff that we've gone over in this episode, right, there's a lot of talk about, like, government-approved extermination, um, whether that be, like, for treason, for un-American acts, executions based off biblical law, rounding up people for degenerate or deviant behavior, arresting doctors for performing gender-affirming surgeries, there's, there's a lot of, like, talk around, like, the government's ability to legally genocide people. Um, but the other aspect of this is, like, the vigilante justice angle of people wanting to just do physical violence themselves. And there's a way that these two things can intersect in a really interesting way. I'm going to play one, one last clip here. You know, some teachers I'm pushing sex on. values on your third grader. Why don't you go in there and thrash the teacher? You talk to a normal person's kids about sex in kindergarten, you get beaten up. You should be beaten up, please. If I was a parent and my fifth grade daughter had had to sleep and shower in some kind of cabin at some summer camp that I paid money to send my child to, and there was a man calling himself a woman sleeping in her cabin, my husband would have beat him into the ground. Where are the men actually standing up against these men who think they are women that are trying to compete in these female sports? Shouldn't put up with it anymore. You need to intervene. You need to show up to the sporting event. Like, this is not happening, actually. There is almost nothing that can be done 
that is uh, that is over the line to stop this. It's disgusting. There was a time in this country of just a little more decency where if someone even voiced the idea of taking your kid to a drag show, they'd be arrested. They are underqualified to have children. They should have their children taken away from them because it's child abuse. So that's a lot of stuff. But rant, you know, it, it, it fluctuates between talking about people taking this into their own hands in a very, like, obviously, like, misogynistic and transphobic way. Again, it's about, like, the access to, you know, protecting access to the feminine body. Um, and then a lot of other stuff around, you know, the government arresting people and such, right? It's about, it's a mix between, like, doing stuff yourself, you know, in a form of, like, vigilantism um, or, you know, eventually advocating for the for the government's ability to do this. Now, we, we've covered a number of incidents of, like, uh, uh, violence or uh, of things that es that were escalating to the point of that right before it stopped um, across, you know, the, the Dallas area. We talked about stuff in Boise, Idaho with Patriot Front. We talked about the Proud Boys who stormed the library outside of San Francisco. Um, I think those are in our in our th I think I talked about most of those across a few of the City of Hate episodes. Um, then we have uh but there's but there is there is other incidents outside of just those cities. Um in Atlanta, a youth justice group was forced to cancel their rally in support of trans rights after an organizer received a specific quote vulgar death threat. In Calama, Washington, a school was put on lockdown after an anti-trans student threatened a mass shooting, uh following a broad student walkout in support of a trans classmate who had been assaulted. Um uh, people graffitied pervs work here on an elementary school in Ventura County, California, following a local right-wing paper's story about a third-grade teacher who affirmed a trans student's name and pronouns. In the lead-up to Pride Month, an anti-LGBTQ activist named uh, Ethan Schmidt Crockett vowed to hunt gay people and trans people and their allies at Target stores. Um, following the store's decision to celebrate Pride, he made the same threat a month before. In June, he attended the counter-protest of a pro-gun control March for Our Lives demonstration carrying an AR-15. In Keele, Wisconsin, schools were forced to shut down and go virtual after bomb threats were made in response to the district's investigation of anti-trans harassment by three students. Something I've been thinking about a lot the past few weeks is that even before Roe v. Wade was overturned, multiple states enacted laws for like vigilante bounty hunters to do the work of the state that the state wasn't legally allowed to do yet, like, directly, right? And to, they were getting just regular people to combat and intimidate providers into not doing abortion procedures. And we're already seeing an increase in physical attacks uh, targeting queer people. And I think many more regular people are waiting for the state government's permission to do the same thing. We don't need to wait for the Supreme Court to say gay sex can be made illegal, right? States can already start doing this stuff now and there's already people waiting in the wings and as soon as they get the go-ahead they will jump at this opportunity i'm going to play one final clip that is pretty pretty grim i just had a man tell me in public that he can't wait until he's legally able until he's legally able to hunt me down <laughs> I just had a man in public. <laughs> he just... 
He can't wait until he can legally hunt us down. This is not okay. This is not okay. So that was a queer person who lives in Oklahoma talking about something that uh, happened to them last month. And I try to, when I make these episodes, I try to not just lay out a whole bunch of bad things. Be like, here's a problem. All right. Bye, everybody. Like, because that sucks. But also, I don't know what the solution here is because this sucks. Um, the California House and Senate just passed Bill uh, uh, SB 107. This bill would provide many protections for families fleeing states like Texas and Alabama. It would protect them from extradition, from out-of-state investigations, and from out-of-state custody judgments based on uh, providing gender-affirming health care. The bill is currently in review by the California Committee on Appropriations, and then it would need to be signed by the governor. If your state doesn't have a trans sanctuary law on the docket, maybe it's time to ask your representative about that. Um, preferably maybe when they're like out at dinner or at church. Um, but also like even getting to the point where we're making plans to flee to other states, when trans people are forced to make plans to flee out of country, when you're investigating what kind of citizenship you can get based on your ancestral family history, once we're at that point, it's really hard. Like it's, it's, and in my, in discussions with queer friends, the past few, like the past few weeks, we've been having more and more conversations about that. More and more plans about when things really do fully break down, where do we go? What do we do? Like, and it sucks because there's so many people who live in states like Oklahoma, like Texas, right? Where that's people's homes. That's where, that's where these queer people are living and they shouldn't be forced to leave. Like they, that, sh that shouldn't happen. And we have great folks like the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club, which I think are providing a really good example of how queer people can work together to start doing community defense in your own areas uh, to say, no, this is our home too. And we're going to fucking walk around with rifles to defend it if we have to. Um, obviously not everyone mentally is, is able to do that. Right. But there's, there's, there's other ways to get, Inter to get more connected to your local community to, to strengthen like queer areas inside you know states where these things are happening. The other thing I see a lot with queer people that makes me really sad is that fighting the state, right? Fighting these types of big homophobic institutions who want to kill us, that's hard and scary. We feel so powerless. We, we want to feel like we have any agency. We want to feel like we have any power at all because there's so many people with power who are hurting us. And it's hard to actually fight back against those. But we feel powerless, so we want to feel like we're able. So instead, we turn on other people who are within our own communities. Because it's easier to attack people who are like us. It's, it, it's, it's easier to, 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 do, to do that, right? It still gives you a sense of having agency. But they're trying to murder us all. Like, personal like, disagreements on politics or whatever aside, like, it would be really nice if we stop just doing nonsense, fighting with each other, and doing dumb, like, click drama, dumb discourse. Like, they're trying to, they're trying to kill us. Can we not? Can we not do that? I know you want to find some way to push back on something so you feel like you have an ability to do anything. 
and doing it against the police, doing it against your state government, doing it against the Supreme Court, that's much harder, right? It's easier to do it against, you know, a friend of yours or someone who you used to be friends with. That's so much easier. But that's not helping in their attempts to just do genocide. So I think making plans to get out of where you are if you have to, making plans is necessary sometimes i've i've thought of this i've been even me in the pacific northwest have had have have had many thoughts about that it's also very important to start strengthening your relationships with other queer people in your communities and starting to put together ways to work with them um to make a show of force and say hey we're here we're not gonna we're here to stay right now you can't you can't scare us out right now because there needs to be some way to combat it. Because these people, they're trying to do, they're trying to be regressive, right? Like they're, we are already at a point that we progressed far enough that they're, they are scared of how much progress has happened. So they're trying to turn the clock back. Our challenge is to keep the change coming and push back against these people who are trying to hold on to the dead 20th century. Right? The fear of change and the fear of the future is driving their return to the past. We don't need to just run away because we should, we should be winning this fight in some ways because we already, hold, we already hold the ground that they want to take away from us. So yeah, bad stuff is coming, but just because bad things happened in history doesn't mean they need to happen again. Like we, There is ways to intervene to stop this. Um, should you keep your passports renewed? Yes, you obviously should. Um, but we don't just need to run away because we actually have ground to stand on here. So yeah, and I, I think I think one thing is also important to remember is that the people who got us here were facing way way worse odds than we are. Like, yeah, the, the, the <laughs> people who had to do this. Yeah, and so like. Like the the job that we have is incredibly intimidating. It is also easier than the stuff that has already been done. Right. And we we already we already got to this point facing s extremely harsh conditions, and we already got there. Um, I don't know. It's just it's always tr struggling to try to find ways to think about this that gives you a little bit of like, you know, it's just like it's so easy to be a doomer. It's so easy just to say we're all fucked. We all need to move away. That's the simple solution, but. So those most simple things are also usually incomplete and wrong. So just trying to find other ways to think about this problem. Because we don't need to tell queer people to run away. Um, and you don't need to tell them they, they have to fight either. Um, you know, queer people can make their own decisions and offer their own resources and start operating in a network that helps the survival of all of us in increasingly challenging times. And I should also say, like, non-queer people, like, look, the, the, the defining characteristic of this moment is that there is a sil silent majority that supports queer rights. Yeah. And if if the, 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 the only way that we actually lose this is if, is if that majority does nothing. But if that, if that majority moves, if the cis people who actually believe in this stuff and if the non-queer people who actually believe that we should have rights and we should be able to live our lives – do stuff we will fucking crush these people they will be remembered as a fucking grain of dust in the sand that was crushed by the tide of history and we can do that we can destroy them we can we can we can we can make it for we can make this moment in history a incredibly 
brief blip where people are like, oh, hey, that was wasn't it weird when homophobia came back for like three years and then it was just gone again. That 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 is in our power. We just have to do it. Yep. All right. Well, <sighs> strengthen community relations. Stop. Stop doing nonsense infighting for no good reason because you want to feel powerful. Put that effort into actually fighting the people that are trying to hurt you, or put that effort into making friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that does it for us today. That was my episode on the increase in queer exterminationism. Um, yeah, see you on the other side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year, Las Culturistas, with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with... Dua Lipa! The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things that could happen or in today's case are about to happen. Uh, I want to talk to you today about the Friendship Park, which exists between San Diego and Tijuana. If you haven't spent time at the border, it's difficult to understand how, despite getting bigger and uglier every year, it feels at once omnipresent and non-existent. 
Friendship Park was always one of the places where the border loomed, but it never quite managed to beat out the tremendous feelings of goodwill you could experience there on a Saturday morning. On a piece of sand, next to a steel fence, that demarcates the end of the United States. Borders exist to control us, not to protect us. And this is never more apparent than it was at Friendship Park, where you could watch grandparents meeting grandkids and dreamers checking in with their parents. At Friendship Park, a half-century-old institution that allowed families divided by the border to meet across the French, the border certainly didn't make anyone feel safer. But over time... People who had never set foot on the two miles of sand in Imperial Beach that many families walked across weekly to be together made laws that would make it even harder for those families to be together. For decades, the park was the only place these mixed immigration status families could come together. People flew from across the US to meet relatives who were trying to make the crossing north to join their friends and loved ones. It was an emotional place, but most of the time it was a happy place. You could see kids having parties on the Mexican side. And sometimes concerts would take place, with the band split between two countries with playing one tune. On the Tijuana side, the fence is covered in murals. At moments, it felt like a small victory over the pointless cruelty that happens here on a daily basis. The park itself was opened by Pat Nixon in 1951. At the time, she said, I hope there won't be a fence here too long. But since then... The US government has built a secure fence in the 1990s under Bill Clinton, then a supposedly more secure fence following 9-11. Then it built the secondary wall in 2009. In 2012, a gate was installed to allow people to enter at certain times on weekends and meet their families separated by just one barrier. Now, there are plans to replace that secondary wall by building a 30-foot wall under the pretense that the current structure is unsound. This new wall, made to the Trump design but built under Biden's instruction, will not have a gate. And the last place in the country that families could touch and heal will be gone forever. Customs and Border Protection blocked access to Friendship Park in February 2020. Heavy rains that year forced state officials to temporarily close Borderfield State Park, the larger park in which Friendship Park is nestled. Since then, Border Patrol has not opened the gate that lets people unite briefly with their families. They claim an influx of migrants has prevented them from having the staffing required to open the park. But on weekends, agents are posted up right by where the park gate is anyway, in case people try and make the crossing without permission, in order to see the families that many of them have been separated from for over two years. Throughout those two years, I've crossed to Tijuana to report on the growing number of people come from around the world, from Haiti, from Central and South America and Ethiopia, and recently Ukraine, to name but a few countries. Despite the heartbreaking stories of danger, fear, and loss, and separation from the people they love, they haven't been able to file asylum claims due to the Trump administration's spurious use of public health laws to severely and illegally limit asylum. I don't have time here to explain the entirety of the Migrant Protection Protocol in Title 42, and I don't really want to either because the justification behind them isn't what's important. The cruelty they manifest is what's important. Joe Biden, who came to office promising a kinder approach, has defended some of these policies in court with his Department of Justice, and the particular cruelty of Title 42, which allowed authorities to expel migrants who arrived at US land borders, has persisted, despite Biden's recent change of heart, 
because several states managed to sue successfully to keep it in place. In the midst of all this, more and more people have been separated by the border. Now, the Biden administration is looking to permanently close the one little island of hope that remained on a beach at the end of America. Obviously, a park with a massive fence doesn't solve a broken system, or make the cruelty any less cruel. But it was a place for healing, and kindness, and love and families. And now that place too is under threat. I caught up with Robert Vivard, a friend of Friendship Park, to talk about the park, the threats to it, and what you can do to help. Robert, would you like to start off just by introducing yourself and explaining uh, sort of where you fit in this, uh, uh, in the Friendship Park world and in the world of the border more generally? Absolutely, James. Uh, my name is Robert Vivar, and I'm part of the uh, Friends of Friendship Park Core Leadership Group. And, uh, you know, the reason I'm, I'm so involved uh, with Friendship Park and why Friendship Park is so important to me uh, is because I was actually one of those uh, family members uh, that at one point in my life I was deported. And uh, the only uh, way that I was able to see some of my family uh, was through the border wall there at Friendship Park. Uh, in particular, my son, who is uh, active duty military, and uh, because of his military status, um, you know, was not able to, to come across the border, or it was very difficult for him to secure authorization from his command uh, to be able to cross the border. And therefore, the only type of uh, visit um, that I could have with my son and, and my, my granddaughters uh, was through that border wall. Uh, so firsthand, I, I understood very well uh, the importance of uh, allowing on the weekends, uh, at least for you know a few hours on the weekend, that opportunity for families to uh, to be able to uh, to meet there at Friendship Park. Yeah. So perhaps we should explain for people who aren't here in San Diego what the uh, what Friendship Park is, right? Or perhaps what it was in say 2019 before it was shut. Absolutely. Uh, back uh, prior to COVID, uh, Friendship Park is a uh, bi-national park uh, separated by a border wall, actually by two border walls, on uh, the southwestern tip of uh, the United States, uh, bordering uh, Mexico. It's a border between Imperial Beach and uh, Tijuana Beach. And uh, Friendship Park is actually... Uh, a strip of land inside Porterfield State Park. Uh, and that strip of land is in between um, two uh, border walls, border fences, if you if you may say so. Uh, and that part uh, is uh, considered uh, to us Friendship Park, uh, which is the area where uh, persons, uh, families, uh, mixed status families from both sides of the border would meet. Uh, but it wasn't only a place for families to meet. It's also a place for uh, people of good uh, nature of the United States and Mexico to be able to meet and uh, and also uh, extend their friendship uh, between the two countries and the two communities. Uh, you know, back uh, you know, fifty uh, almost fifty one years ago, this is the area that uh, then First Lady Pat Nixon um, actually uh, inaugurated as uh, International Friendship Park. 
and actually went as far as cutting a uh, barbed wire or having the Secret Service cut the barbed wire there at the park so she could reach across uh, to the Mexico side and hug the people of Mexico uh, because of the, uh, the, you know, the sentiment, the feeling of, of that friendship uh, between the two countries and, you know, her very famous words uh, that she wished that there would no longer be a fence here to separate these two great countries. And of course, we know that uh, uh, 51 years later, or fi almost 51 years later, uh, that has taken a, a, an opposite uh, course of direction, uh, where we now have uh, two border walls. Plans are to uh, erect two even higher, uglier eight walls uh, to divide our two great countries. Yeah. So perhaps, again, I think people um, have a very... Uh the way that people see the border when they don't live on the border is very different to the way we see the border when we live on the border, right? Um, and I think part of that is in this understanding of walls and fences and barriers and uh, the various things which we have already along the border, right? So um, maybe you could give us a little sort of potted history of the different, uh, I think you're right, they're secure fences, right, that were built uh, through the Friendship Park and, and across the sort of uh, San Diego-Tijuana area. Right. Well, uh, you know, again, for the longest time, the only uh, fence that used to uh, separate the two countries was that, uh, that strand of barbed wire. Uh, however, uh, after Operation uh, Gatekeeper 9-11, um, it was uh, decided to, uh, to build a, uh, a sturdier fence and then uh, in uh, 2011, a secondary fence uh, was erected. And at that time, uh, the threat of uh, the park being closed uh, again uh, because of the advocacy of Friends of Friendship Park, uh, it was neg negotiated with, uh, with uh, Border Patrol uh, that the, uh, the park would uh, continue to remain open. Uh, with a limited access of, at that time, 25 persons um, at a time uh, on Saturdays and Sundays from uh, 10 o'clock in the morning to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, that second uh, wall was erected when uh, the federal government uh, claimed uh, eminent uh, domain from the state of California and acquired uh, that piece of land uh, which is uh, uh, now considered uh, the enforcement area, and, and to us uh, is the area that uh, we better known as uh, Friendship Park. Right. And so, um, what's the? There's a threat to the park now, right? There's a, there's a new threat, and I think people uh, again like might not have realized that uh, we're continuing to build border wall, border barrier border dike it's sometimes called uh depending on which part of the uh, country you're in but can you explain how despite joe biden having signed this executive order saying uh what he claims saying not one more mile of wall how are we still having this threat of building a, a bigger uglier wall right and and you know i think that's uh that's precisely the question uh that friends of friendship park are asking that why is it that uh if uh, President Biden uh, has stated that he would not build one more inch of uh, Trump's border wall, all of a sudden now has uh, decided 
to finish uh, the construction of uh, of Trump's border wall. Uh, it's a question that that um, that we all asked, uh, and is part of the um, uh, the petition that uh, we have reached out to uh, uh, Border Patrol as to uh, the inclusion of the public in uh, in those plans on uh, continuing the replacement of uh, that wall with thirty uh, foot bollard. Uh, uh, fencing. Yeah, and that 30-foot bollard fencing, that's what people will be familiar with as the the Trump wall, right? That is correct. Uh, something that, you know, the fencing that exists right now, uh, you know, it's it's there, and I guess uh, even though we, we may not like what it is and, and what it represents, uh, you know, but it is there. But now to go even further, and further desecrate our park with two 30-foot bollard-style uh, fences uh, just completely uh, obstructs the, the aesthetics of, of the park, uh, desecrates our park. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, with this sort of further threat to the park looming, you, you touched on it earlier, but I'd like to go back to like what the park means uh, especially to families who are separated by the border, right, and can't cross to see each other. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, on on uh, when the park was open on on a weekly uh, on a weekend basis, uh, you know, we would have families. Uh, you know, for example, grandmothers that had never met their their grandchildren, you know, meet their grandchildren for the first time right across that border wall. You know, mothers that hadn't seen their their kids in. 20, 25, 30 years, uh, you know, the joy of, you know, of, of being able to at least see them across that border wall and, and just, you know, a couple inches away from them. And even though, you know, nothing could pass through through that barrier, um, the only thing that was able to to pass through the, um, the orifice there on the wall or the fencing uh, was the tip of your finger, uh, which is why, uh, we kind of uh, uh, created what we call the pinky kiss because that's the only thing that would reach across and that's the only way we would be able to hug and kiss our loved ones on the other side of the border. Um, very significant. And, you know, something that um, uh, that we hope more people would understand is that, you know, by having the park open and families allowed to be able to visit across that fence, it would allow people, even though it's not the best scenario, but at least it would give people, it would give families the opportunity to remain being a family, to have a little bit of contact with their loved ones, something very important. We keep hearing about uh, reasons for, you know, border walls and more uh, check, uh, uh, tech and, and security and so forth is because incursions. Well, to us, this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we have more incursions uh, because people get desperate from losing contact with their loved ones that they're willing to risk their own life to be able to reach their loved ones. That's why you have increase in people trying to swim across the border wall. That's why you have people uh, reaching out to further points in the desert, trying to reach their loved ones. That's why you have people uh, climbing 
some of these 30 foot walls and falling and, uh, uh, you know, bravely uh, injuring themselves because you get to the point that your family is everything in your life and you're willing to risk your life to reach that family. When uh, Porter, uh, when Friendship Park was uh, open, uh, we had a lot of conversations with a lot of people that, that came to the park to visit their families. And in speaking to them, uh, they would tell you that, you know, being able to see their, their families, their loved ones, and, and uh, sharing those moments together was very comforting and very energizing and motivating to continue to fight, uh, to search for a legal opportunity to be, be able to reunite with their loved ones. Yeah, and I think we should point out that like since 2020, since the park has been closed, it's not just the park being closed, which has created like a hostile environment for people seeking asylum or seeking to reunite with their families in the United States, right? We've had the Migrant Protection Protocol, uh, which is better known as Remain in Mexico, right? And we've had Title 42, uh, sometimes called Catch and Release, both of which do the same things that you said, which is for increase the amount of people who cross in high-risk areas and increase the danger to migrants, chiefly. Um, so there's this, there's this perception, I think, that things changed in January 2021, but they didn't, I think, for most people, certainly people uh, I've met trying to come to the United States to be safe. Um, they still can't, and as you say, they... They still can't see their families. Um, perhaps we should also mention that, like, sometimes we talk about um, Friendship Park being binational, but it, it's more than that, right? Like, it's not just uh, people from Mexico who come to meet their families at Friendship Park. It's, a, it's a, There's people from all around the world who are unable to come to the United States but are in Tijuana, right? Right, absolutely. It, and, uh, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, families that gather there. Uh, it's uh, friendships. It, it's a, an opportunity um, for people from any part of the world uh, to be able to make uh, a connection, make a friend uh, right across that border wall without actually having to cross uh, the border. Uh, if for if whatever reason it may be, they they cannot uh, come across to to the Mex or to the Mexico side. Uh, you know the the park is all about friendship. That's what why uh, to First Lady Pat Dixon was so important. The uh, designation of the park, in consideration of the great friendship that existed and has always existed. And and you know what? No matter what happens, uh, that, that is going to continue because, uh, in particular, San Diego and Tijuana, we're really one community. Um, there's a tremendous population in San Diego that have relatives in Tijuana and vice versa. And it's not only, you know, the, the family, but commerce, uh, you know, we're one community and uh, one way or another, you know, uh, people are, are going to stay connected. Uh, always figure out different ways to be able to, to remain connected and have that friendship. Uh, and I think part of uh, the reason for that is because, uh, you know, a lot of people see that that border fence and they see a barrier. But uh, 
we see that much more than that barrier is the barrier in our heart. And uh, with, you know, the people uh, of our community, that barrier doesn't exist. The only barrier to us is that, uh, that fence. Uh, the barrier in our heart does not exist because uh, we have respect for each other and, and we consider ourselves uh, friends and one community on both sides of that border wall. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's, uh, yeah, the, the border exists a lot more sort of uh, on the ground than it does in, in the community here. Uh, and I think so many thousands of people cross every day. It, it's really odd to have it presented as this hard, impenetrable thing. And then it's also just an annoyance and, and a reason that we sit in our cars for hours trying to cross north. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about, because the, the, there's the Friendship Park and then there's the, the southern side, right? Uh, Parque de la Amistad. Like, what's the um, official sort of setup in, in Mexico with regards to the park? It's a little different from the U.S., right? Uh, yeah. The, well, you know, the big difference on the Mexico side is uh, like our pastor John Fannister says, uh, on the Mexico side is one big party, you know, yeah. one, one big uh, uh, friendly, uh, happy atmosphere, just like what you would expect to find in any part. Uh, where families gather on on the weekend and now you know during summer vacation even during the week uh you know a bustling uh, uh beach city uh with a, a magnificent friendly park family oriented uh family friendly park where where people go to enjoy a uh, a, a a beautiful park um unfortunately uh our our friends on the U.S. side uh, cannot enjoy the park as uh, as much as the, our friends on the Mexico side do because of these uh, limitations uh, on the park. Yeah, it's it's a shame, like you said, it's very contrasting. Like the U.S. side is kind of difficult to get to, and it's only open um, certain hours. Or it's well, it's not open at all post. Uh, we should explain that, right? So it was closed in twenty twenty. Uh, for COVID, and then, if I understand right, following that, it remained closed because Border Patrol were understaffed, they claim? Right. That is uh, what we have been told at uh, Friends of Friendship Park. Originally, that uh, it was closed because of COVID, uh, and uh, the understanding was that uh, when uh, the COVID situation uh, was over, then uh, that their plan was to reopen Friendship Park. Uh, however, now we're being told that because of a lack of uh, uh, personnel, that they're not able to staff it accordingly uh, to be able to open it. Uh, you know, you touched uh, a little bit earlier on the uh, MPP program. Uh, you know, if there has been increase in incursions uh, into the U.S., a lot of it has to do with uh, the asylum process uh, that has been halted for so many for the last last couple of years that, uh, you know, forces people in desperation uh, to take their life uh, at risk and try to gain entry into the U.S. You know, uh, it, it's not that difficult to understand if, if you're living in a country where uh, crime and, and violence is widespread and uh, you have a choice whether you leave your country uh, and travel three, four thousand miles uh, to reach some kind of safety, uh, to protect the life of your of your loved ones, of your family, uh, 
you know, you're you're going to you're gonna if you risk that you're gonna you're gonna risk you know your life trying to get across it and protect your family, and if the only way you can do it is by jumping over that fence or swimming around uh, that ocean, uh, it you know that's what we've seen happening, and uh, a lot of that has got to do with uh, the asylum process uh, that has uh, been shut down and continues to be shut down. Um, people are going to continue to try to, to, to save their life and their life of their, of their family. Uh, that's why we're hoping that um, the asylum process can be uh, reinstated as international law requires, calls for it. Uh, and uh, that would, would definitely uh, show a decrease in, uh, in incursions. Um, Again, you know, a lot of these incursions uh, are people trying to reach uh, safety for themselves and their and their loved ones. Yeah, and it's been a very difficult situation in Tijuana for a lot of people. Right? A lot of people have arrived since MPP started. Like for a while, people were camping at the at the at, at the border crossing, right? But in town, like at, at Ped West, yeah, that then is they correct. got cleared. Yeah, it's it's also sort of forcing the. Uh, all these shelters and nonprofits in Tijuana to saddle the burden, which that they do a, a very good job with, largely. But uh, this, you know, we're this massive, richest country on the on earth, and we're just kind of sort of shutting the door at the minute and saying, like, you're not welcome. Right. That that uh, that is absolutely correct. So I know that you uh, you've been doing some events at the Friendship Park, right? You've got a concert coming up. Could you tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have a concert coming up uh, for our 51st anniversary, and uh, the uh, headliner for the concert is uh, a gentleman known as the uh, the father of Mexican rock and roll, uh, which began here. Here I'm saying here, which be, began in Tijuana, Mexico, Javier Batiste. and uh, you know what? Uh, what is really neat is that. Uh, Javier Batiz was actually the uh, the mentor of Carlos Santana, and you know yeah. we all love the music of Carlos Santana, an uh, incredible performer. Uh, well, he had his start uh, with Javier Batiz uh, at one point here in, in uh, Tijuana, Mexico. I keep saying here I'm in San Diego, uh, uh, in Tijuana, Mexico, <laughs> and you know Javier is is an icon of of uh, rock and roll music uh, and of Tijuana. And, you know, what, uh, what I think is really special about this concert uh, is speaking to Javier. Um, you know, his ideals are very much along the ideals of uh, uh, what Friendship Park is all about. And, uh, you know, friendship puts a smile on people's face. And that was something that, that Javier told me personally. Um, I love to play my music uh, because my music puts a smile on people's face and I like to make people happy. That's great. And, and you know, that's the whole idea behind Friendship Park, to make people happy, to have people enjoy uh, a beautiful park, enjoy their families, enjoy the friendship across the border that we have. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's very sad... The whole sort of canard is very sad, right? Like the idea that um, 
we don't have it. We have enough money to build a giant steel barrier, but not enough money to open this place up for you know a few hours a week for people to see their families and, and enjoy themselves, enjoy that time together. It just seems almost uh, like pointlessly cruel, I guess. Um, which I don't know. Sometimes a lot of the immigration system seems pointlessly cruel to me. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, when you separate a mother from a child, that is cruel. When you won't allow a mother and a child to even be able to gather for a couple hours a week, separate from a barrier, that's very cruel. Uh, when you don't allow people of good nature, of goodwill, uh, to visit, even though it is across a barrier, that is not good. Yeah, I think it's important that people across the country, like, obviously, like, it can be really difficult to care about everything, right? Like it's it's a pretty difficult time in the, with the Supreme Court decisions and, and seemingly sort of nonstop mass shootings. It's a difficult time for everyone, I think. But like, um, I think it's important that people realize that the border is where a lot of these policies get tried for the first time, right? These, these things which, uh, like if we look at the way that like, privacy of people living on the border has been eroded for a very long time and, and that's happening to other people it happened in 2020 right it was a border patrol drone that was flying over minneapolis during the protests and so if people want to push back and to show solidarity and support how can they support the park and how maybe can they support the people who are stuck in in tijuana and want to cross but aren't allowed to cross because of of mpp or title 42 or restrictive asylum uh, sort of legislation. Right. Well, uh, you know, what, what we're asking people to do if, uh, uh, you know, you're in the, uh, the Southern California area, um, you know, rain or shine, uh, we go ahead and continue having events at Friendship Park on the U.S. side, like our bike rides, uh, our native flora workshops, uh, our border church uh, on, on Sundays at 1.30 in the afternoon, um, we invite people to come and join us. Uh, come and join us on a bike ride. Come and join us on Border Church and show your, your support for the need uh, to continue uh, the work that had been done for so many years at Friendship Park in support of our uh, binational families and our binational community. Uh, also, very important, contact your, your congressman, con contact your, uh, your senator. Uh, and if you're in California, of course, your, your California senators, uh, assembly uh, persons, um, we need to urge them to, uh, uh, to advocate for us before uh, Homeland Security, um, before the Secretary of Homeland Security, so they may understand the importance of uh, the uh, the friendship park offers not only to the families but to uh, to our communities. Uh, you can secure a border a lot better through friendship than through uh, uh, you know border walls that at a given moment uh, can be breached, uh, as we have seen they 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 have occurred. Um, the strongest uh, security that anybody can ever have is a good, strong relationship uh, on both sides of the border. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's very well well said. 
Um, so if people want to come to Friendship Park, can you just explain how they would uh, get to one of these events, like where they have to go? Absolutely. Uh, what uh, I would recommend is uh, follow us on, uh, we have a Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram accounts, uh, Friendship Park, and also our website, friendshippark.org, where we have information on all the different events uh, on our border church. And this way you can uh, join us uh, on, on the U.S. side, or if you want to come to uh, the Mexico side, uh, is wide open. Uh, you can you can go directly right to, uh, to the uh, monument area where you can enjoy this uh, this great beautiful monument uh, to commemorate uh, uh, the demarcation of the of the of the two countries. You know uh, you can you can enjoy it either either way, but we we do like uh, and we stress people to come out and join us on the U.S. side uh, so that uh, uh, you know we're not forgotten. Uh, so that this beautiful piece of land um, on Borderfield State Park, known as Friendship Park, uh, is not forgotten. And not only that, you know, uh, enjoy the beauty of, of, of the park. We have a beautiful park there, Borderfield State Park, uh, adjacent to Friendship Park. Um, it's something that uh, very uh, few people are being taken advantage of lately. Uh, we've had quite a few more visitors out there. Uh, horseback riding, bicycling, a uh, few families out uh, you know, uh, taking a dip in the ocean. Uh, but uh, this is a beautiful uh, beach that, that we have there on the U.S. side. And uh, welcome, you know, our, uh, our community, our uh, San Diego community to come and enjoy it as well. And, uh, you know, as you come and enjoy it, uh, you support our efforts uh, to demonstrate the need to uh, keep our uh, park open yeah yeah i think that's a very uh yeah it's it's not hard for people to help uh, and i hope they will how long do we have do you think how long do we have before uh they break ground on this new wall right uh we're not sure how long we have uh we were told that it was a matter of weeks uh if, does that mean two weeks three weeks uh it's hard to say but we know that uh it could happen at any at any time uh, and lately, we've uh, observed several uh, uh, crews out there uh, doing uh, uh, surveys and such of the area. So we know that uh, it's uh, any moment uh, they should be breaking ground. And uh, we hope that uh, before that ground breaks, uh, that they will consider our request. And uh, you know, a call for public uh, uh, uh for public uh, support, for uh, public input as to what the park should look like, uh, you know, give that consideration uh, to, um, you know, if you're gonna you're going to replace walls to make sure that, uh, you know, the that gates are allotted uh, so that um, these visits can continue, because as we understand, there's no provision at this point. For any kind of uh, of gate, for uh, you know, for uh, person access, for people access uh, into the area, uh, that of course tells you that there's no intention of continuing uh, at one point to open the uh, park uh, for the visits, uh, and of course that's uh, extremely concerning. Yeah, especially for people separated by the border. Okay, 
Um, so just to finish up, can you give us those uh, social medias and web addresses again where people can find you and help? Sure, absolutely. Uh, if, uh, we're, our website is www.friendshipart.org. Uh, the Facebook, you can find us under uh, Friendship Art. Uh, you can also find information under uh, Order Church. Great. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk. I know it's a busy time for you. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you today. Thank you. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ding dong, Las, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year Las Culturistas with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with Dua Lipa. The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.